Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing With Fishes podcast, episode 258. Um, if you guys are just catching up, we've been doing some Monday shows lately. We've had a lot of guests that aren't able to do Thursdays easily or have some other schedule conflicts. And we used to do shows on Monday back in the day. We used to have Last Week in Cannabis, so we started doing them on Mondays again. And we're going to keep rolling with this as long as we have uh, guests that um, need, to, need to do this. So um, tonight we have Brendan Russ joining us tonight. Thanks a lot, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, thanks to all the listeners tuning in, the people that are listening after we've already done the uh, podcast. Uh, just a quick introduction. Um, my name is Brendan Rust. I've been cultivating cannabis for about 20 years now. And uh, you can find a body of my work at rust.brandon on IG. You can also find a link to my company, Bokashi Earthworks, and my farm, Black Label Organics. Thanks, everybody. And um, if you guys are just uh, tuning in here, also be sure to check out the Virtual Aquaponic Cannabis Conference, which you can find out in my background. Um, November 13th and 14th from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Pacific time. We will have speakers the entire time, every hour on the hour from around the world, including Sweden, Switzerland, Australia, Colombia, Canada, South Africa, uh, the, across the United States uh, and, and more, uh, Vietnam as well. Uh, and just a ton of really cool knowledge and a, a ton of cool speakers. I think that if even if you're into soil, uh, that you're going to learn a lot. We have some really cool, interesting KNF speakers that are, have different philosophies than I think a lot of you guys have been exposed to before. We have a bunch of really cool commercial aquaponic cannabis producers that are co growing commercially and selling product every day in their respective countries. Uh, and kind of show you guys that, hey, this is working at a large scale around the world, not just in the United States, but all over the planet. Um, and we're gonna bring that live for free right to your home. Um, so you can check that out here. Uh, we actually have the schedule. Um, uh, we have myself, uh, Sweetwater from South Africa, Symbiosid from Sweden, uh, Aquilitas from Canada, Dragonfly Earth Medicine, uh, Thumb Genetics from Michigan, Matthew Gates, uh, the uh, pest management uh, uh, gentleman we had on uh, a week or two ago, uh, Caleb from Copy Left Cannabis. We have Chris Trump, uh, commercial cultivation panel. Uh, we have Dr. Wilson Leonard from Australia. We have uh, Dylan McAvin from Canada. We have Wendy Kornberg uh, from uh, Humboldt County. We have Quang Con Femme from Vietnam. And then we have uh, Breeder Steve uh, from you know, everybody knows who Breeder Steve is. He's also the oldest aquaponic cannabis producer that has it in writing. And then we have Angela Tenenbrock. Uh, she does a lot of uh, biosecurity auditing and, and things like that for both uh, aquaponics producers and cannabis producers. We have Victor Lavinov, uh, who's a microbial specialist out of Sweden, who's gonna be talking about um, all the different soil and mineralizing microbes in aquaponic systems. We have Joe Pate, who's uh, one of the, the best people in, in aquaponics in terms of um, uh, understanding of how the microbes interact with the mineralization. He did a lot of research with that at Kentucky State. We have Tanner Stewart, who's a commercial cannabis operator out of Canada. Uh, we have uh, Dutch Blooms, who has a wonderful uh, living soil and aquaponics farm out in Washington. Kevin McKernan, breaking down the genetic analysis of soil microbes. Uh, we have Rob Nash from Austin Aquaponics, who's been doing hemp for three years down there in Texas. 
Clackamas Coot. I don't think it needs much of an introduction. We have Dr. Robert Faust, who's the guy who did a lot of the humic, uh, fulvic, and kelp extract uh, research. Then we have Murray Hollum from Australia. And then a grow panel and craft grown panel. We have some super cool uh, moderators lined up for the, uh, the different panels that I think you guys are going to like. And then we have Marty Wydell to close us out. Uh, again, thanks everybody for your support. And um, uh, feel free to share these uh, and repost the various postings as you see them. It helps us uh, just get the information out there. And then all this is for free. Um, we're not doing sponsors like we did last year. This is just going to be an information event um, just to try and get more info out there. Thanks everybody for watching. Uh, all right. Um, so Brendan, uh, you're, uh, you do so much awesome work and, and tons of um, different things with living soil production. You have some incredible flower. I've had the pleasure of smoking myself. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days, and then uh, we'll get into some of the questions. You know, I'm still up to the same old stuff, uh, growing weed and, you know, running the Bokashi Earthworks Company. Um, so I, you know, I'm always, the interesting thing about what I, what I'm doing is there's always more to learn. Right. And so I've been doing a lot of agronomy on peat based systems and I've been using things like mineral sulfates and different and amino acids, humic fulvic acids. And, you know, I just create, I, you know, I have a set baseline that I have for veg and flour and I add a mineral amendments to, um, to, to maintain a balance and sufficiency in a living soil system so that the plant always has what it needs when it needs it as it falls into solution, you know, as, as far as water goes <clears throat> when it's being watered. So um, I'm doing that uh, and doing, you know, tissue and sap analysis, which is one of the, one of the, um, one of the things that is taken from different segments of agriculture, really. It's, uh, you know, done in things like uh, grapes or like wine. You, and there's, you know, target nutritional needs um, for those things. And, you know, so I'm just kind of taking a play, <clears throat> uh, a play, uh, a play out of, you know, a different type of, you know, agriculture that's already been around and applying it to canvas. Um, I'm working on some, you know, I have an R&D box, which is kind of fun. I get to do breeding and testing out different things. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just right now I'm working on, you know, looking at soil carbon as a nutrient and, you know, the overall effect on the system itself. And, um, you know, finding some interesting work. I'm actually uh, going to be going to Chicago in like 10 days um, to go meet uh, a guy who developed some products for, for NASA, for NASA, he developed all the NASA agricultural products and he, you know, have an opportunity to learn some stuff from that guy for a couple of days. So yeah, those are some, uh, some different types of um, spore, the, there's four different types of mycorrhizal fungi in there. There's some glomus, uh, there's some, a couple, uh, I think they're all different, uh, four different species of glomus. Not all of them are going to be specifically for canvas in that consortium, but 
it's a general mix for kind of most agriculture. But this is a little test on this video that we're looking at right here. I just figured I'd show off some of your work while you were telling us about what you're working on. So um, what are some of the different practices that you're, work, you're utilizing with your living soil? There's lots of different methods that, that people grow with. Um, tell us a little bit more about your methodology. Yeah, give me just one second. Uh, the dog keeps whining over here. <laughs> no worries. Thanks everybody for joining us this evening. Um, let me, uh, let me throw this up here while we're waiting on, oh, that's right. Okay. So, uh, you know, the, the methods that I'm, that I'm employing for like, uh, scaling cultivation is really just buying on the cheap, large scale, um, amendment things like gypsum and getting your, you know, Mac, your Epsom salt in bulk, you know, getting everything in large quantity and just doing, re-amending your soil um, and then testing throughout the run. And if a lot of times, if you, if you load everything up properly in the, in the beginning, um, typically you just have to make a couple adjustments as you transition into um, uh, flowering. But, you know, I, I, uh, on the reset i do a whole you know top dressed amino acids humic fulvics usually uh gypsum potassium uh you know just all kinds of uh different amendments and it's really it's a really simple program you know if you test regularly and everything is in a sufficient amount when it falls into a um, solution and what they do is they uh i send it off to a lab and they do two different tests they do what's called a soil test and it gives an overall profile of what's in the soil and then they do what's a, called what's a saturated paste test and it's what it is it's a weak acid extraction and what they're doing is they're basically simulating the types of um, conditions that would solubilize what um what becomes available as things fall into solution. So whatever's on that soil test, it doesn't necessarily mean it's all available all at once, right? It just gives you a general idea of everything that's there. And then you have this, this other test, which is a snapshot of how that soil falls into solution at that particular time, right? So if I get a, a test result back on a saturated paste test. Oh yeah, and the weak acid extraction is also kind of mimicking like root exudates, right? How they would, you, you know, there's different chemical compounds that they release that will, you know, have different effects in the, in the rhizosphere to, you know, either oxidize or reduce minerals or to um, give, give, you know, maybe a complex carbohydrate into the soil that will attract a certain type of microbe that'll help solubilize something all kinds of crazy different dynamics that, you know, I'm sure all your listeners already know a lot about that. Um, so what I'm looking at is when I'm watering, I'm making sure that everything is available as it's in solution so that when it's in contact with the roots, it'll be, it'll be available. 
right? In the in the available form, right? Because the saturated paste test shows like ferrous iron, right? In PPMs, how much of that is available? Not just total iron. Where the soil test would show you, hey, you have the you know x amount of iron per acre of soil, or you know, you could say pre per volume of soil. And, you know, that's not necessarily all going to be biologically available because iron is a really tricky one. It oxidizes really easily into Fe3 plus, and that's not available to the plant. So same thing with manganese. It causes it, it you know, a lot of times it'll, um, it'll cause uh, manganese oxides and, and those aren't, you know, those types of bonds are hard to break. Um, they're not soluble. So the soil chemistry changes, you know, as you water and as it dries back and as it, it so it fluctuates all of the, the chemistry in there. So we're just reading on the saturated paste test, you know, an idea of how everything is falling to solute into solution at a particular time. And if we do this throughout the cycle, and then also if we do, you know, tissue and sap, which we'll all get into next. Um, if we take those, we can look at what's happening throughout that cycle and just kind of reimagine and add stuff if we see things becoming deficient. Um, what's, what's really interesting is you can use that as a baseline um, and just kind of do that throughout the, your cycle and just keep everything on point the whole time. But then you can even go deeper into it. And what you can do is because... Because um, the plant will, even if something is available, right, that you see everything is inadequate, it's efficient, it's balanced in your saturated paste test, you don't have a bunch of antagonisms going on with like bicarbonates or chloride or sodium, and you're looking at these things, pH is all good, right? It doesn't always equate to the plant being able to uptake that. So if you look at tissue, you're able to see, okay, how much of the percent of what is falling into solution is actually in the plant itself, okay? And so that is like part of the way that you can deduce what types of levels you need to have fall into solution. Because if you're aiming for a certain point of calcium percentage, maybe like five, five and a half percent is your target range, then you, and, and you're not reaching that, at when you're testing your tissue, then you know you need to add more of a soluble calcium source so that way you can get to that percentage range when you are taking your tissue testing, right? And it's the same for all those other mineral nutrients, right? If you're not in range and you, you can see it like, okay, hey, so all these data points, they, they, they're, they correlate to one, one another in a certain, in a certain way. Right. But you have to know how to kind of read them and understand like the dynamics of those nutrients and why something might not be getting the percentage that you want. So calcium, let's go back there. Right. If your tissue test on calcium, it, it's a low percentage, but you're having a lot that's falling into solution and you can't figure out why you can look at other things like your sodium. Is your sodium really high in tissue also? Um, or is that high in solution? Could that be blocking some of what would be available for the plant to take up? Or is magnesium or potassium too high? Because those are 
those are chemicals that interact with each other. They're both, they're, they're antagonistic to, to one another because they're all cations. So um, if, you, if you look at it from that kind of standpoint and you can see where the correlations are being made and then make substitutions, pull things back, right? Pull your magnesium back maybe a little bit and see if that helps increase. There's different ways that you can approach when you have data points, right? To try to maximize, you know, the genetic potentials of these plants or the profitability of these plants by in, able to increasing their yield and their, their quality, right? And, and then you can get into sap, which is a whole nother, a whole nother like rabbit hole you can go down, right? So sap actually tests what is available in the xylem and phloem. So what is like the plant has access to? So tissue is usually what is stored. It's not a, it's not a definite reading. Some of that might be some of those fluids, but it's basically a general percentage overall of what's in the, the plant itself, right? What sap does is sap measures the lower part of the plant and fully photosynthetic lower part of the plant and fully synthetic uh, higher portions of the plant. And what they're able to tell you with sap is how things that are, are, are being translocated in the plant tissue itself. So if you have a mobile nutrient like phosphorus um, and you see that your phosphorus is dwindling in on the lower part, you, it gives you an idea that it's pulling from the bottoms, which means it needs more phosphorus. So you might only see that with one specific, specific cultivar that you're running. And you can test each of your cultivars and see if you're running all the same targets and all your, and you stay in range the whole time while you're doing your tissue, your sap and your um, uh, soil testing. And you're hitting all those marks, you can see different cultivars, nutritional needs, right? So, and then you can also preemptively act on something that might be deficient because typically a plant won't express deficiency symptoms until it's probably passed around 40% of its deficiency. And you can preemptively see that if you're looking at sap and you're seeing that magnesium is, is, is lower at the bottom than it is at the top, it's because it's not getting sufficiently filled in so you know you can add more and so that's one of the things that uh the sap tells you is it tells you how things are moving in the plant tissue and and how much and if it's not mobile like calcium it'll tell you it'll give you like a history of like dude you didn't have enough um calcium you know back here when the plants were in this stage of growth and you're still suffering up here. Or you could see if you added amendments and then you retest, you could see how the lowers might still be low, but all of the new growth has sufficient amounts of calcium. So that just gives you a ton of different data. Sorry, I, I went on a little tangent there. No, and they're more accurate data points than anything else that you can get. We used to do... Uh, tissue samples all the time back at the aquaponics source to try and figure out which inputs that were fish safe were actually doing something versus which ones were not soluble long term with the microbes that we had. So I, I applaud you for doing all this type of research. And it was one of the things where um, uh, it was really nice to talk to you about, you know, various levels of different things. 
I'd love for you to break down um, the different um, levels of, uh, let, let's talk about phosphorus because you did a ton of research on that. And uh, it looks like uh, uh, Mr. Coot will be joining us here in a minute. Um, but uh, why don't you tell us uh, about that and your research with phosphorus and, and how I think people really are running phosphorus way too high because typically a lot of the bloom boosters were monopotassium phosphate and they don't need that phosphorus that late into flower. They, you know, and uh, you, you're probably one of the best people to talk about this. So one of the, one of the things that, that I see on the data and I have, um, and I share my data too. I share a lot of my data with um, Bryant Morrison, soil doctor on IG. And we look at the, and we look at what's happening in the soil and specifically the consortium that's known as effective microorganisms. Um, there's different formulations, but it's specifically uh, several different species of bacillus, a pseudomonas, which is a purple non-sulfur bacteria, which has four different modes of metabolism, which is really important for the functionality of this group as a whole. And then there's um, the uh, saccharomyces, which is just the fermentive yeast. It's like brewer's yeast, basically. Um, but together, they create uh, a, a lot of plant defense compounds. They create a lot of secondary metabolites that are benefit. And some of those are enzymes that solubilize the uh the mineral phosphorus into a plant available phosphate and so that's one of the things that we can see because typically in an organic uh, organic setting it's it can be difficult to get high really high levels of soluble um of soluble phosphorus and that's usually because what happens is we're running so much calcium in these um, peat-based systems, right? And what happens is it precipitates into calcium phosphate. Um, and that has to either be broken down again through enzymatic processes um, that's uh, by the uh, microorganisms again. Uh, but what I've been kind of going down a rabbit hole and I'm looking at soil carbon as a nutrient. And I think uh, soil carbon has benefits because I think it can cluster phosphate uh, molecules together and, and keep them from bonding onto the, the calcium sites. And if you can keep that, and if you keep those, those relationships separately, you can get the benefit of the high availability of phosphate and still have the solubility of the calcium. Really interesting. Um, uh, I hadn't, hadn't heard that from anyone before. That's that's really cool. Looks like uh, Coot's also joining us as well. Thanks for joining us, Coot. Thank you for the invite. I had a problem getting my uh, camera on a new iPad working correctly, so I just that's why I logged off and I came back on a your, a real your, computer. Your uh, your camera looks a little better. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know it's a long story. Apple doesn't <laughs> put a lot of money into front-facing cameras. So. Yeah, <laughs> they're more concerned about work, you know the bezels or something or some insane you know uh, metric. So, um, so why don't, um, 
why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about some of the awesome education that you have there, uh, uh, Brandon, on your website and on a lot of the awesome, you have a ton of really good posts that are super informative on, on the availability of a lot of these nutrients. Yeah, so um, what I did is I have the Bokashi um, IG also, and that's more collectively just education stuff. So people don't, it, it, there's no weed stuff on there. It's just mostly pictures of plants and uh, stuff like that. Uh, I, I did that for the, I did that for the website as well. I just translated all of the things that I had turned into posts for IG and I put them together with the mineral amendments. Yeah. So I'm more, I'm actually working on my website too. So I have single source mineral inputs because they usually, they make these for large scale cultivation for organic cultivation. And they don't usually make uh, small amounts for people who are doing home grows. And if you can learn, you know, there's a lot of people who want to be hands-on and have something to do and they can learn about all of the different mineral amendments and how they work and what they do. And if they go onto the website and they're, let's say they're ordering, you know, iron, uh, uh, iron sulfate, they can read about what iron does in the plant, you know, what the available form is. And iron's really tricky in organics because iron oxidizes so easily in the pH ranges that we normally operate for, for cannabis. It operates in any humid condition. It oxidizes in water <clears throat> and then becomes unavailable. So um, again, I think carbon and using the humic fulvic acids, those have a great, great advantage when it comes to keeping these, um, these types of uh, oxidation um, chemistry, the oxidation chemistry with iron from happening. So it stays in available form. Yeah, and, and I've read a lot of your different stuff and you had a recent one, uh, I guess it's on your other account about potassium, or no, I'm sorry, potassium, um, aloe vera. Aloe vera. Yeah. It's one of it's one of the things that organic gardeners have been using for a long time. It's nothing new, you know, it's something that we got from picked up from the OGs like Coot over here, you know. And I, you know, I, and people don't talk enough about how much vitamin B plays a role in increasing growth rates. Um, you have all these different wonderful vitamins and um, other things in the this particular plant uh, combined with the uh, high silica and, and other things. It really is a, a wonderful supplement. It's, it's really interesting because there's, when you think about um, like laboratory con uh, conditions, when you're culturing bacteria, microbes, fungi, anything like that, you can typically take, you know, an agar plate or certain types of media to culture certain types of microbes, but there are so many different you know, carbon compounds, organic, there's so many organic, organic, you know, compounds that, that can be utilized by a massive, a massive amount of uh, biology. Uh, and, you know, when you add those things in, you know, the science, we don't exactly have the science to know exactly what all these things are producing, what other chemicals that might be beneficial, because it's so hard to be able to find 
it's it's really expensive. I mean, you would literally have to be able to genetically sequence everything in in the soil biosphere. Then you'd have to figure out what metabolites each ones are producing and at, at what volumes. And then, you know, it's it would take a massive amount of money. But it'd be really interesting to see, you know. And I think there are a lot of companies doing it. It's just not something I'm actively able to be involved in at the moment. Sure. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your uh, your upcoming talk? Oh yeah, so um, the the cannabis expo, which is going to be in November, yeah, uh, I think twelfth and the thirteenth. Yeah, that's going to be in Oklahoma City. That's where I live, and it's at the convention center. It's pretty big. A convention center. It should be a lot of people there. I have a Bokashi Earthworks booth set up. I'll have some swag and nutrients there. I'll have samples, I'm sure. I'll have probably, you know, freebie seeds like I always have in my pockets when I go to these events. Um, but I'm going to be talking uh, about, I'm going to actually specifically be showing people the target levels for um, veg and for flour for what I have seen the best results as far as this specific um, type of testing using this specific lab, because you could do the same thing, but if you change labs, just like if you change the labs for a lot of things, the standard operating procedures, the SOPs that are in place, they could be different. And a lot of these places have proprietary methods. And so you're going to get a different you're going to get a different um, out, outcome. And so that's one of the really important things about collecting the data is you want to make sure that you always stick with the same thing, because even if the data wasn't like perfect to begin with, as long as you're progressing and you can say, Hey, I have a base and you're, you're able to create baselines, right? Where you, where you can visually see it. And then as, as long as you keep on those baselines, then you keep collecting that data, you can build and see how far you can kind of push these things with the data. Well, I definitely plan to come out and support you on that Friday uh, before uh, for our com my conference that weekend, but um, I will be definitely be there on, on Friday for sure. Yeah, it should be fun, man. I, I really like to go to the conventions, the whole, there's a big community out here and uh, it's fun to just share people come by, help them understand a little bit about soil science and stuff and understanding the testing for, you know, the, 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 the practice of, you know, testing soil and leaves, leaf tissue and sap. Yeah. So tell us more about the sap testing. Uh, is it, what are some of the different results that you've found that were a bigger factor? I know that uh, in the little, little bit of work that I've done, molybdenum and manganese definitely were two that were, you know, uh, deficient quite, a, quite often. So I would, you often don't see molybdenum in the sap. And the reason why is because molybdenum, molybdenum, excuse me, is used, uh, almost specifically for the, I think the nitrogenase reduction, uh, pathway. And since the plant is always photosynthesizing, it gets used up. If it's you, so typically if you see a large quantity of buildup of molybdenum in the plant, it's because the plant is not functioning properly. 
right? It's because it's the enzyme process isn't happening. So something is like, something's messed up internally as far as the internal mechanics of the metabolism of that plant. It's not creating the enzymes or there's just maybe you, you're just completely deficient, totally deficient in nitrogen, you know, and it's just building up, it's built up or something, or, you know, I don't know, but I, I don't, I don't see high levels of molybdenum in sap, but one of the things that sent me kind of down a rabbit hole was the iron and copper because those two micro, those two micronutrients, <clears throat> they seem to have, I, I don't fully understand the, the, the redox chemistry for copper, but I know that iron again, it, I mean, uh, it, it just, it falls into unavailable form so easily. And so in most, in, in most chemical nutrients, it's going to be like a, it's going to be a chelated chemical compound that keeps it in that form free floating in, in the solution. But it, iron doesn't do that really in, in soil, right? Unless the pH drops really low, then that iron's not going to be really available. It's going to be a lot harder for the plant to get up. So I would see low iron levels. Um, and, and then also uh, copper. Copper seems to be needed in higher amounts, larger and larger amounts as the plant actually matures. But because of soil chemistry and stuff, you're also going to need to make sure that you don't push it too high over zinc because it can they they're they're both cations and they're going to antagonize each other. So you need to there still needs to be balance, right? But um, it just, what I'm seeing is that it just needs more of it as, as the plant matures. I mean, this is what I'm deducing from the, from the data that I'm collecting. Um, also from the sap, what I see is if you can maintain and, and push phosphorus and maintain that high levels of phosphate in soil, you're going to also see your micronutrients increase as well. The molder chart, yeah. That's where things like Mulder's chart becomes so important, you know, in terms of maintaining balance. I like to always explain it to people as if, imagine this is a spinning top. You're trying to keep it level and, and spinning. If you have too much weight on one side, it's going to cause an imbalance. It's going to wobble and, and tip over. So you, if you increase one, you have to increase some of the others that are synergistic with it. Um, and if you don't, or antagonistic with it. And if you don't, yeah. you're going to have issues. Yep. And, and man, um, you know, calcium is tricky too, you know, because you can lower your calcium to get your phosphorus higher, but it, it's like, it's costly because the plant also needs that. There's just, it, it, there's so many different tricks, man, that you can use to like, and so that having a data and kind of understanding how all these things work, because when you're looking at the data, man, I'm looking at something and if, if I don't understand the mechanics, like the molder chart, if I don't understand why they're interacting the way they do, it's typically because, you know, it, it, of the way that they actually react chemically right in these in the system because this the soil chemistry and then the internal chemistry of the plant with the nutrients is is different the things that are happening so 
we got to look at kind of, I mean, I look at soil chemistry different from like the, the nutrient that the plant is using and what's happening inside of the plant differently. You know, it's not, they're correlated, but they're different. They're different things. And so having that, that balance in the soil system, being able to have everything, man, to have everything all, I mean, it's not that much, right? It's not that many things, but it's when you, when you can see it, when you, when I can, when I can see it, when I can see it on a piece of paper and be like, man, I wish that this was a little bit higher. And it's like, man, if I, I know what I need to do, right. If I want to push phosphorus a little harder, I got to drop the calcium levels, but you know, okay. So I need to add more organic um, matter into the system. You know, there's, there's little tricks that you can do. So that way you can get all the things that are adequate. That's why doing things like the amino acids, right. To, to, as like the uh, biohack for, for saving energy, because the plant is going to take up the nitrogen. It's going to convert it into the amino acids is going to convert those into proteins, but it, but the, but the L chain aminos, if they're available and you feed those, they don't have to, it doesn't have to be converted, you know? And so it's a, it, and it, I think it, I, I heard that it took up to, I think I read that it was like 15 to 18% of the plant's energy is used in that nitrogen conversion process where it converts the nitrogen into proteins. So can you break down the uh, amino acid uh, science for us? Um, we haven't had a, a ton of good explanations on that on the podcast so far, and you're extremely knowledgeable in this, in this area. We'd love to have you break it down. Sure. So there are essentially 20 amino acids that are responsible for all life, whether it's plant or ourselves. Some of these amino acids are, our bodies can produce. And some of them we can't, that we have to get from other substances, same with plants, right? So amino acids are a carbon, uh, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, right? And so what happens is the, the plant, it, it uptakes, you know, ammonium and, and nitrate in, in the soil, and it has to convert the nitrate into ammonium, and then that has to be converted into amino acids inside of the plant. And then those amino acids are turned into proteins. Proteins make up all the things like the lignin, the cellulose, all of the stuff that creates biology, all of the structures of the cells, those are all built from proteins essentially, right? And so you have, and then also these proteins, these amino acids, they work to build all these other complex carbon chains inside the plant. They're responsible for different enzyme complexes. They're responsible for all these enzymatic pathways and they do different things. They're almost, and some of them are almost like receptors, like that turn on things and start engines. And it's, it's, it's mind blowing what, what, what they do, but essentially you can skip that process of the plant having to, um, you know, convert nitrogen into amino acids if you introduce the amino acids in an adequate quantity into the soil itself. And not only does this in, give the plant the amino acids, but it also increases the soil biology because all of those, all that protein, that carbon and, and the nitrogen that's in there too, the soil biology is going to feed on it. And that's going to increase your, your microbiome populations as well. So that's going to increase the metabolites that those 
things are releasing. So you get all these different plant, you know, growth PGR responses from doing this. It saves energy. And then here's the crazy thing, right? It's stored up in the plant tissue. And then, oh man, I'll have to give, uh, I'll have to send you the link. It's in my Dropbox. Um, and it talks about ATP, adenine triphosphate, which is the biological exchange currency for all cellular mechanics, right? It's a, a triple phosphate molecule that is, it, it, it's basically the energy that powers everything. So when these things are stored, it stores up ATP. And so if the plant needs back backup reserves to get these uh, and they start breaking down any of these uh, proteins, it's also going to release that ATP into the system itself. And typically you don't get ATP uh, unless you go through ATP, the ATP synthase process, which is like through all the photosystems and the carboxylic acid cycle and all that other stuff. Um, I know uh, Raku had something about the iron here. Do you want to chime in? What I was trying to explain, and I didn't do it very well. In the uh, mainstream fertilizer world, uh, products are sold as micronutrients <clears throat> and have for several decades. What's interesting is it's always the same seven elements. And so sometimes they're referred to as a heavy seven, not that they're heavy metals, but that's just the phrase in, in the industry. And so what it comes down to is what form is the iron? What form is the molybdenum? What form is the copper? All the ones that you mentioned, and there's again, a seven. And um, sulfur is one because, well, it's just because, but anyway, so I know of a source that I use where all of the elements have been chelated with uh, correctly extracted fulvic acid out of uh, humic acid rock. So what I'm saying is you could go into a Home Depot or a mainstream nursery and probably a grocery store has you know some products or whatever. What's important is to look at those micronutrients and, and what, what form are they? How are they arriving on your doorstep? You know, there's a lot of different forms of calcium and some of them I wouldn't want to use in my soil. Uh, the stuff that uh, they use around, you know, like a uh, baseball field, you know, to put the, the running lines and all that. I wouldn't add that to my soil. I mean, I've read people online doing that because, you know, they're bored and mom's not home. So they just type outrageous crap on a, a forum about, you know, yeah. And I take a drywall and chop it up, you know, for the gypsum and everything. Yeah, it's really good. Good stuff, man. Um, but anyway, you get the idea. So I'm just saying that th that's why those products are there. And I'm not, I'm not recommending anything, one product over another. I'm just saying that you're going to find the seven, the heavy seven is, is all. And then what it comes down to is, you know, what form do you want them in? Yeah. And, but the does interesting that make sense? Too, yeah, no, it does make sense. So, and that's what we're typically looking at things that are going to be available when you put them into the system. However, when you put them into the system, they don't always stay in that available form. And so having that, you know, the, those fulvic and humic acids for natural chelation or even amino acid chelation is, is really good too, because you can do things like there's a company called Biomin, for instance, and they have a whole line of 
liquid nutrient and it's basically they've just taken humic and fulvic acids and added a you know the form of plant nutrient that would be available and they can keep it in that form as long as it's you know surrounded by these complex these humates and these these full in the fulvic acids you know right so that's, that's well that's the there's trick. an advantage. One of the argument, not arguments, but one of the uh, bits of truthiness about using plant-derived uh, materials in our soils, or at least part of it, if you're going to put it into your vermicompost system, which you know, value-added kind of thing. But the reason that the plant material, like alfalfa, being you know a, a good uh, accumulator, is that those nutrients have already been chelated by the plant. To even be, end up in the leaf matter or whatever part of the plant you're using. So um, versus, as Steve's pointed out many times, mined mineral compounds. Um, you know, I mean, because it's such a stupid word and it's, it's, it's silly science. But at one time there was a couple of clowns running around the deal uh, promoting vegan gardening which is absurd but um if you take it by its strictest definition of veganism what you couldn't use manure or worm castings i mean what are you going to do uh you know but uh well just taking an idea and taking it to its silliness you know to its nth degree promoting the use of plant materials doesn't mean you have to turn down okay it used to be when i first got started talking to people online well, you can't call, you know, uh, oh, let's take calcium carbonate, okay? Standard stuff. Seashells have been accumulated over millions of years, right? Well, you can't call that organic. It doesn't have a nitrogen, excuse me, it doesn't have a, a carbon ion. Okay, smartass. Let's try this one. It's not listed as organic. It's listed as approved for organic food and fiber production. How about that? You know, it's in its, I mean... I know what you're saying. Sometimes yeah, I mean, there's there's sometimes uh, adults are in charge, you know. There's a Pete, there's always somebody out there that's gonna have something to say about other things. I know what I do works for me and I share what works for me because um I have good results with it. <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, you know, it's you know, when you do things at scale too, it's it's you, you have to look at your costs of your inputs. You oh, I got it. Your yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times it's a lot easier to do, you know, maybe a just to do a top dress in the beginning and then maybe one or two small top dresses. Um, sure. These long beds, you know, for, for these, um, for the systems that I'm running, uh, then it would be to, I don't know, just kind of get, I mean, I, if I wasn't taking data, I would really just be guessing. I'd be doing a system and just trying to replicate it over and over until, you know, it didn't work because that's what would essentially happen. I would go many, many cycles in, many cycles in, but I was always adding things like, um, man, oyster shell, crab meal, um, kelp meal and i wasn't aware of how much sodium i was putting in there and the antagonistic relationship that it was causing 
between all the other uh, the other three major soil uh, cations. And so I, I look at these uh, the tests now from a different per perspective, and I could do really well, but if I ran into a problem, you know, with my organics, you know, when I was just doing things out uh, in the traditional market back in, in, you know, back home in San Diego, I, uh, I would just have to guess, you know, or I'd have to reset and I'd have to make a new soil mix and I'd start over, you know, and it was organic still, but with this, it's like, you can just keep going and going and going and never have to really worry about like, what's going to happen. You can take all your material, compost it, make your composts. And like, there's a lot of different ways that you can go and really put everything, almost everything back into the system and really reduce the amount that you have to, to use. You'd be surprised how little you have to use if you maintain everything properly. I couldn't agree with you more. As a matter of fact, um, I, in my soil mix, it's 33% uh, <clears throat> vermicompost that I make, not, you know, wiggle worm or worm gold or some silly product like that. Yeah. Um, a third aeration and a third sphagnum. Uh, not peat, but sphagnum peat. Kind of like in the old days, tops versus shake. Peat moss is shake and sphagnum is the tops. Gives your, it gives your soil structure for air passages and water waterways in your soil. And then as far as nutrients, if, and I wouldn't call it that because I'm relying on the worm castings um, successfully, but it, uh, it's limited to less than 1% by volume uh, some calcium carbon and it doesn't matter limestone oyster shell you know it's all it's gypsum. all the same I thing use a lot of gypsum. so yeah i had well i had a gypsum but gypsum gives me elemental calcium calcium yeah and the sulfur My, and almost every potting soil on the face of the earth is always deficient in sulfur just that's well the especially if you're running a lot of yeah, with the mineral sulfates that you won't ever have that problem, your sulfur would be really good. And cannabis loves sulfur. Uh, it's um, most, you know, in, in conventional agriculture, when they're running something that's an oil producing plant or something like maybe lavender, for instance, they're going to run sulfur really high because it aids in the oil and, uh, and, uh, sure. and resin right. production. That's and why people that grow in core, I can remember for years and years that people growing in core often or they would state their problem and then say well here's what i'm doing you know on the old forum uh structure of exchanging information and it was always about i don't have any smell and i don't have much flavor so that obviously is terpenes terpenoids and ketones and without sulfur is the base of almost every metabolic function on this planet so uh, I wouldn't say simple or easy, but adding some, uh, as you wisely pointed out, adding some gypsum is going to give you a solid uh, sulfur profile and you pick up the elemental uh, calcium. And it's cheap. I mean, go over to Home Depot and it's what, 650 for 
25 pounds or some craziness. Yeah, that's the same with gypsum. Gypsum's like 13 bucks for 50 pounds. No, that's what I meant. That's what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Uh, Gypsum is like... Oh, yeah, it's dirt cheap. I, my my recipe is a little bit different. I went with uh, 20% of a manure compost that I tested and made sure it didn't have uh, super high magnesium because that can happen sometimes. Um, and potassium. And potassium wasn't too high. That, But yeah. I don't mind potassium because cannabis is potassium hungry. I added, I added 20% of, uh, of uh, manure compost. I do 7% of a vermicompost. I do 3% gypsum. I do, uh, let's see. I do, and then I do a third of sphagnum peat moss, a third of, no, I do uh, sphagnum, uh, rice holes, and uh, uh, pumice. So I'll do... Yeah. I'll do what, uh, I think I do 25, like 22% of each of those, 10%. I know it's like 10% rice holes. I think uh, maybe like 20% um, of the pumice. I think it's about, I'd have to look, I'd have to look at my recipe. That's yeah. the base mix. That's the, the very base mix as like yeah. a percentage. And whatever that is, as far as like, if it's like one yard of soil, then I'll add my like mineral amendments to that. I'll add my, my mineral sulfate to that. Like my micronutrients, copper, magnesium, manganese, zinc, iron. I typically don't really add molybdenum, but you can. I'm I'm lucky to get, uh, you're probably getting your rice holes out of Arkansas from, uh, this major company, they're like the largest rice packer in the world. They pack uh, literally in the world. Um, but I, uh, God damn it. They have one that's called partially boiled, PB, PBH, partially boiled hulls. hulls. Yeah. The reason they do that is to kill any uh, unprocessed rice so you don't have sprouts. Uh, anyway, that company, they're in right at night like Southern Arkansas. And so they do the Louisiana crop, the uh, Texas crop, the Arkansas rice crops. They also have a big organic uh, one down in uh, California called Lundberg. You may have seen their products in the grocery stores are organic uh, brown rice. And so we're able uh, to get organic hulls up here at the farm store because they use it for bedding and stuff like that. But obviously like you, a lot That's of people uh, in the organic uh, world use it as a, uh, a amendment. Of course, we have pumice here by the cheaper in heck, especially if you buy a, like a tote, then you really get it down to nothing. Um, yeah. And in fact, I use the rice holes as a uh, uh, to grow mycelium. Uh, you know, sterilize it first and then in a pressure cooker and then inoculate it with the uh, spore juice whatever you want to call it and um it inoculates fast but it's not for growing mushrooms per se but it's for like inoculating them big areas of of uh, like your compost and let the mycelium develop big networks in there and break down your cellulose and you know the other things that fungal foods 
and it just uh, ups your game. It, it, it takes a, uh, let's say you're, you did a good job and your compost is an eight or a nine. You can take it up to a 10 for nothing. Yes. Uh, just time. That's the only, and not, and not that much time because my ceiling works a lot faster than bacteria like uh, compost. But yeah, back, as far as amendments, I use uh, alfalfa, a cup, and two, these are all cubic foot. Um, so alfalfa, uh, neem, organic neem out of India, and uh, oh, and basalt rock, rock dust. That one I hit pretty good, about five or six cups per cubic foot. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah. Wait, per cubic foot? Yep. Dang, dude, you're not worried about heavy metals? Mm -mm. No, That's I know where this comes crazy. from. I, I know everything. I don't, even use, I don't even use that much calcium, calfos, which is a uh, soft rock. Oh, I don't use phosphate. any of that. So. See, I don't the even main use difference much in us is that. That's like okay, when, I say, when I say worm castings, I'm starting with. Uh, legitimate thermophilic compost made i mean the the manure was composted yeah not i'm not putting raw uh and, and never would put raw uh, manure into a worm bin so i would the just from like an agronomic standpoint i'm like i'm like like for like, cause I do soil wrecks, right? I do soil wrecks for a lot of different farms that, and if I was going to look at something that I, what, what is the, can I ask what the reasoning behind adding so much of the rock dust is for? Um, in conversations with uh, the U.S. Geological Service, the gentleman who headed up uh, one of the big producers here, which is called, uh, I think it's Cascade Minerals, if I'm not mistaken. That's a brand name. And when uh, they were building, rebuilding some of the uh, loading and unloading docks on the Columbia River, they shored it up with big boulders of uh, basalt. And Anyway, long story short, when they had to cut these to size, not like cutting them into cubes, but they had to be of a fairly consistent size to allow for stacking to make these levees along the banks of the, uh, of the Columbia because they'd bring up big ships, ocean-going vessels up here all the way like 100 miles up the river into Portland. So when they were uh, done, they had these pieces. And so they brought in some technology from South Africa which turned these chunks could turn it into a consistent mill size. And thus was, because we've always had basalt here, but it just wasn't in a form you could use. It was either pebbles or uh, what do you call it? You know, like your garden stuff. Uh, you would probably call it, uh, let's see. What are you, what are you, what are you? Lava rock. Lava rock, which is actually scoria. It looks like pumice, but it's different. Yeah. What's the purpose of using so much of that rock mineral? Well, when we look at the soils uh, here in the Willamette Valley, which saw incredible uh, volcanic action over um, 
millions and millions of years, making it some of the richest farmland in on the West Coast, certainly. Well, I would even go so far as to say the 11 Western states. And uh, you look at the uh, level of basalt in the soils, and then let's look at Hawaii in the uh, cotton, excuse me, the uh, coffee sector, and look at the, again, the uh, basalt levels in that soil. Um, I don't even come close to uh, what some of the, uh, what used to be called truck farming, now it's called market farming. People that do like the weekend uh, farmer's market type things, you know, the raised bed, uh, the five by 20 beds and all that stuff. The uh, bio, bio-intensive, not biodynamic, but bio-intensive, John Jevons, the uh, ancient Chinese method of plant non-center to reduce uh, you want as you want as many plants as possible in the smallest amount of area to re, uh, keep down uh, weeds and other uh, watering issues. Uh, maintains yeah. a more standard hydration. So for me, typically, because I'm looking at the data, I'm I'm only I'm adding what needs to be in there um, to to create sufficiency and balance, so I can maintain a target level throughout. Uh, throughout a cycle and so like typically like you know the one of the reasons I don't use any uh things like azomite I don't use you know I do use like rock mineral like calcium phosphate for instance calfos um I do use some of that at the beginning a lot of times in the beginning of a run maybe about when I'm transitioning but I usually don't ever go over would be you know max range would be like six cups per yard which is approximately 27 cubic feet of soil um because if you were to add let's say that amount to a smaller um when you look at it from an agronomics uh point of view having that much you know rock dust depending on what the mineral is it could possibly have a lot of antagonistic uh, responses to uh, some of the other things that are in there. Um, but yeah. I'd be curious to see what the, but do you test? I mean, are you testing your, your rock dust before you put it in? Cause you're trying to get a certain element into the soil. Like, are you trying to mm-hmm. add like a certain amount of calcium see, or see what happens in the cannabis trade is that a term is attached to a, a group of, of materials, right? that have no link whatsoever. Okay, azomite, which isn't the, that's the brand name. That's a, a commercial registered trademark thing. The original deposit was in France and it's named after this valley and it starts with an M, but it's labeled correctly, it says clay. Sure. And they've been using it for about 700 years to make uh, clay ovens, the beehive French uh, bread ovens. Okay, but in this country, they found a deposit in Utah, I guess it is, um, and gave it a name, azomite, and it stands for A to Z, mineral, you know, whatever. That's what it's an acronym. Okay, but its sister elements are bentonite and zeolite. They're all aluminum, mineral, uh, silica uh, compounds. And as soon as they get chelated, now you have free-floating aluminum 
in your soil. I, I would never, ever use any of these. But yeah. And it's bentonite, for example, is mined right here in Oregon over in a place in the desert called Christmas Valley, which is a joke, I guess. Um, I mean, it's the desert. But that's the stuff that's in a kitty litter. They dig it out of the ground. They put it in a bag that says kitty litter, and they stack it outside of grocery stores. And if you want to really get it cheap, go to a, a pottery shop or you know, a place that sells supplies for uh, people that do uh, pottery work, clay uh, uh, I don't use I don't use any azomite or any you know like I would never use like a rock dust to try to add a mineral into the soil. I would just I'm get not, a see, mineral, but I'm okay. I'm asking. That's what I was wondering. Just okay, if it, okay, here it goes. In real uh, soil, at its very basic definition, is rotted animal and plant material and shattered rock. And how did the rock get there shattered? Well, from lichen, fungi and bacteria growth on rocks over billions and billions of years, little tiny pieces, and it took billions of years to make the soil. And if you go into an old growth forest and you pull out that soil, it would be it would send off bells everywhere. Oh, you can't grow with this. You don't want to use this. It's got too much this. It's got too much that. And you start looking around, and the place is, it's a forest. It's a it's a, a jungle. It's a temperate jungle. But and then you look at that soil. The amount of of uh, but see the kind of products that you're talking about not using, which is a good thing. Those are, those are branded for people that they just want to do rate, label reading. Oh, it's got this. I read this. I want that. Okay. Instead of looking at the whole picture. And the whole picture is that we're talking aluminum. Well, I mean, me personally, they- I, I don't grow in soil, right? I don't, there's no, by, by definition, what I'm growing in is not soil because there's no, nothing has been weathered. There's no sand, silt or clay in there that has been naturally weathered. Gotcha. On. Okay. Basically, you know, it's a modified growing mix where we're taking sphagnum and all these elements. And so I think that, and well, I know that the redox and oxidation states of these, um, of these uh soils are way different and are treated different than a standard agronomic soil right and when i'm doing agronomy on the field and i look at the field conditions i'm not trying to meet these the same target nutritional levels that i'm trying to meet in these peat-based systems either right so i think that when when I look at uh, a, um, the soil from, from an agronomics per- perspective, I'm looking at something different when it comes to the peat-based system and then standard ag- agronomic settings. Um, so for me, when I'm looking at these peat-based systems and I'm you know, trying to maintain something consistently, because I have to, right? Because we have scale, we want consistency all the, all the time. Um, I'm specifically like going through a list. I have a list of mineral amendments that'll, that I can add to get me to a target if I'm, if I feel that I'm low. So 
that's my that, that's why I had asked because I was just curious if there was like a certain element that you were trying to like reach no. for try to no. you know like because I know zeolite no. right instance increases the cation exchange capacity in soils right so what, I don't what know does? the zeolite wait a minute what does zeolite oh. yeah it'll increase you know cation um the the ECE I mean um yeah, I know. So I, know just, I was just curious. I, I, I was just if it was like a specific a thing that you're trying to go for, if it was general. No, not at all. Not at all. I I, I don't. Uh, I didn't ever build soils or build recipes trying to achieve a, uh, a nutrient profile, uh, or you know, you meet some uh, some checklist, but you know, get check all the boxes off. But yeah. this stuff is like, I mean, doesn't get any worse than this stuff. This is strictly right out of, uh, you know, 1981 marijuana botany book. Uh, I don't, is this the one that, they, that is used for kitty litter zeolite or do I have it backwards? Is it bentonite? I might. I don't know. I'm not sure, but I don't use any of those stuff. I mean, I don't use those in my I don't solar. either. There's, there's a lot of stuff too either. that I have to, that, you, that I have to be aware of that could contain heavy metals because we'd have to do heavy metals testing. And so even in organic production, you have to be careful of where you're sourcing your things, because if something's yeah, contaminated yeah. and you're always adding the same thing in the, in there, it can build up over time. So it's one of the things why I don't use like kelp, for instance, I don't use any kelp in my systems because I've seen so many people fail for arsenic using kelp or um, kelp based products continuously over and over and over. Well, you know, Steve hit me with that the first time I appeared with him, and we already went through this, but there, what, there's a big difference between seaweed extract and kelp meal. And yeah, that, I, know. Those, I know, but those differences came to a head in 1957, and under international treaty, the names were reserved for what they were. Kelp meal is material that's pulled out of the ocean, it's rinsed off, it's dried in, they call it solar drying, okay? And then it's milled to a consistent size. The majority of it, it never hits the soil. The majority of it is used in livestock feed, for show dogs, for racehorses, if for chicken feed, to increase, you want healthy dogs, you give them kelp, you go into a foo-foo. But then again, we're talking, okay, so, but seaweed extract is made using, by law, you can look it up yourself, by law under USD NOP rules, has to be made with either sodium or potassium hydroxide, same stuff they use to cremate bodies. Yeah. So you, you dose, you pull out the good stuff that you make money on, like the iodine. In World War I, they were pulling out uh, kelp off the West Coast and selling the, uh, our, the uh, acetone to the, uh, our allies, and they were made to make explosives. It's still used as explosives by terrorists around the world, so they can pull acetone out of the kelp meal. Yeah, so this is, this is someone that was using way too much kelp in their aquaponic cannabis facility. Uh, but I don't understand, I don't understand. Why would a person put kelp meal in an aquaponic? Wouldn't they put in uh, seaweed extract? Well, it, it, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call the product, but it was a seaweed extract plus, plus iron. Well, see, that's what I'm trying to say. 
after they pull out all the goodies, the alginic acid, because that has commercial value. After they pull out the mannitol, after they pull out the arsenic and all these other things, then they hit it with this thing that burns it up like you torched it. Well, you do torch it. I mean, I've seen videos of it and the the, uh, fronds are just bouncing around these chambers because they put so they hit them with so much potassium. It's the same stuff they put in Drano. I wouldn't pour Drano on my plants because I, well, I don't like, I don't like, you know, I mean, it's just insane. You think they wash it, they get, make sure it's really clean before they put it. That's what maxi crop is. Anything that's black and is so-called seaweed, it's, it's seaweed extract. It's not kelp. Kelp is what you feed animals. It's an animal feed. It's oh, they, a lot of the stuff they pull out of North Atlantic, they sell to Ch- uh, Japan for making nori and for making kombu, all the different forms of seaweed. So, we, uh, yeah, we I, I, I just, I, you know, mixing up the term is all it does is confuse people. I, I just I, I, I don't understand why that's done. It's kelp and it, you might as well say like. I don't know. It's I mean, it's, they're so far apart. You can do lots of cool stuff. You can do lots of cool stuff with kelp too. Like we've showed about making the super. In fact, here I'll throw it up on the screen real quick. Um, You know, making stuff like this uh, out of it as well. What do you think petri dish agars comes from? It comes from kelp. I mean, this has almost gotten funny. I've been bombarded for the last two years. Well, you know. You can't use kelp because it's got, and then I asked a very simple question. Okay, so there's three branches of marine algae, red, green, and brown. That's it. It all, they all, all fall. Okay, but in brown, there's 1,800 species, and that's the variety that's uh, used, excuse me, uh, to make maxi crop, to make uh, the stuff out of Nova Scotia, Amer- uh, Acadian Sea Plants Limited, a- ASL, okay? So when somebody says, well, they were using, were they buying it on, uh, what's that old one that used to, uh, Alibaba.com, they buying some stuff out of the South China Sea? I mean, see what I mean? There's, it's always, I can never get a straight answer. Well, what variety were they using? Where was it harvested? Who's the processor? I never get that. All I get is, oh, yeah, it's going to cause, you know. I don't know. Animals to fall over dead and, you know, kill your plants and it's going to accumulate. I'm just trying to ask what, where's it from? Where's this poisonous kelp coming from? That I'm not sure. That's a fair I, question. That I is a fair question. Definitely want to track the source. I got about maybe like 10 minutes left before I got to go. I got to wake up early and get to the farm tomorrow morning. So we had a question from Chad about um, why not to use langbanite. Sure, sure. So you can use langbanite, but you need to be, uh, you have to know what you're using it for. So typically people will look at langbanite and they'll use it as a potassium supplement. And the problem is that it also has a high percentage of magnesium and that magnesium is actually more soluble than the potassium in it. So what'll typically happen is they'll try to use the, the um, langbanite as a source of potassium, essentially overloading their system with magnesium and they're causing a a cation imbalance between uh, calcium, magnesium, and potassium. 
So that's why you don't use, um, you can use it if you know that you need, let's say, you know, you're deficient in magnesium. You can use the lanthanide as a magnesium source, and then it's going to give you that extra bonus of the slow release potassium, but you never want to do vice versa where you're trying to supplement uh, potassium because you're just going to introduce a lot of magnesium to get the amount of potassium that you would probably want to supplement a soil system with. Um, the best choice is probably going to be potassium sulfate, which is another rock mineral. Is that is correct me? Langvianite is the two commercial names on the uh, industrial or commercial level is uh, K Mag, and yeah. then on the retail level is Sulpo Mag. Correct. Yeah, sulfur, potassium. And, okay, all right. I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Yep, it yep, was named yep. in those days when it was discovered by the geologist in Germany, Langvian. They used to give you the they take your last name and add I I'd on to it to give you an, uh, like a recognition. Like that's how we ended up with, uh, Leonard Ide, you know, sure. uh, Dr. Cool. Leonard and all that stuff. Maybe one day I'll discover a thing and they can call it Brandonite. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I've just known people over many years that have destroyed their crops, high dosing with the KMAG. I mean, there's not a good thing I could say about it. It's like, yeah, you don't want to do that. Why would you use that? You know, this is this is my you know kind of pro tip for growers. If you're having problems with your soil, you can try backing off on adding magnesium to the soil and using a tablespoon per gallon of clean water distilled RO work as a foiler application sure. because you can get the magnesium in the plant that way without causing an imbalance. Because typically what'll happen is when you're really trying to push your system pretty hard um, and you're adding that magnesium can get too high and it comes antagonistic and then you end up with not enough what I see constantly across the board with my new consultees when they come in, their magnesium levels are always above potassium. And it's well, should, be, and it should be vice versa. And so, and so They've when, been. give me just one second. So yeah, I always address that, right? And one of the ways that you yeah. can keep that from happening is by using a foiler application of magnesium. That way the magnesium in soil doesn't elevate too high to where it becomes antagonistic. Yeah calcium and the potassium Look, starting in 1981 when uh, marijuana botany was published i've watched from the sidelines first we had to do phosphorus let's obsess about phosphorus for a few years and then magnesium oh boy the the sales of epsom salts just went through the goddamn roof man. okay and then uh what was the next oh then potassium and i guess now we're on calcium and magically, there are companies, can you, I wanted someone to explain to me, calcium is a metallic element. How do you liquefy it? I mean, that's, that boggles my mind. At its like ionic level, it's atom, it's a, it's a metal. How do, you, how do you turn that into a glass of, uh, can I drink a glass of uh, uh, liquefied calcium? It's, I don't think it's, so. It's only a metal when it, it's only it's only a, a metal when it has a lattice, right? When all of those molecules are inter, interlocked, to create a solid compound. Otherwise, it's just a free floating molecule, chemi a chemical of, you know. Let's agree that it's a misuse of a term. 
Okay. I don't think that somebody over here in, in Felony Flats in Southeast uh, Portland is in, working out of his garage to make the next, uh, you know, wonder uh, bottle of uh, something is able to reduce, you know, to liquefy calcium. I'm sorry, I just don't buy it, you know. Mm, well, I mean, you can. I mean, I have a basic understanding there, of chemistry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, one of the things I'm working on is using a biological ferment combined with humic fulvic amino acids and then a full complex of mineral nutrition. And I'm doing an experiment right now with that, but you can, you can keep these things in solution. It just, you just have to know, you just have to know the science. Okay. I was going to say the, the one method I've found that works well is the, the WCA yeah. with the, with the mm -hmm. acidic, uh, vinegar solution and the, and the calcium. That well, here's work. the thing. The reason why calcium is difficult is because it's not super, super soluble. Like gypsum, the level of the, of solubility between, um, gypsum, which is calcium sulfate and Epsom salt, which is magnesium sulfate is way different because the solubility of magnesium is way exponentially higher, which means the availability of it is exponentially higher. But it doesn't mean that the calcium isn't soluble. It just means it's less soluble. So you might need more of it in solution to supply the adequate needs for a plant. Well, the solubility comes from the fact that the sulfur, if I remember correctly, is in the form of sulfur oxide, which is water soluble. Same. Yeah, so same. that when you apply it, yes, your, uh, uh, your sulfur is off and running, usually out. Is, but anyway, um, so then you're left with the bits and particles of elemental calcium. I get that. Um, but what I was going to say is on the magnesium, you want to really tighten your soil up high dose with, uh, magnesium. I mean, it's like when you were a kid, you got sick, your mom gave you milk and magnesia because it would tighten up your, uh, the floor, you know, so you didn't have diarrhea. Well, it does the same thing in soil. It restricts the water flow. It restricts the, but they, the, the, the kids in cannabis, you know, say about like 1995, man, you got to have magnesium. These are magnesium hungry plants. And then you look at a, a chlorophyll molecule and it has one, one magnesium atom. One. It's, center. It's, got a, it's got a shitload of oxygen atoms. It's got a shitload of carbon and a shitload of, uh, what's the other one, carbon? Oh, hydrogen. And one magnesium and four nitrogen. Four. Magnesium hungry. I always I crack up when I hear that. Yeah. So what's what does really it even mean? Do is that there is a positive correlation between magnesium in soil, as so far as soil chemistry, and uh, potassium. I mean, not potassium. Um, and uh, uh, phosphorus uptake. So it's sure. been shown that having slightly higher levels can increase. But again, it's all about that balance, man. It's like finding that Goldilocks zone. Um, but it's about time for me to sign off. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Um, again, you guys that are listening, if you're in Oklahoma, you can come see me at the convention center. I think Ed Rosenthal will be speaking. 
some other good, great speakers. My booth for Bokashi Earthworks will be out there. I'm sure I'll see you out there, Steve. I'm sure I'll see you before then since we live so close to each other now. Yeah. Um, and thanks, Coot, for your input and your time. But it's about time for me to sign off, so I appreciate everybody that tuned in. This is Brandon Rust, and I just want to say, everybody, have a good night. Best wishes on your convention. Thanks for uh, – and how to, any other ways people can find you? Is, uh, what do people look for if they're trying to get some of your flour out here in Oklahoma? Sure. That's You can all uh, hit me up on any of my pers- – like my personal page, and I'll hook you up with um, our sales guy. Or you can just hit up the Black Label Organics page, yeah. And that I use that as more of my marketing kind of page. It's all professional photography of our organic flower. And it's just kind of, you know, just a little preview of what we're doing over there. That was a fun time. But I got to go, guys. Beautiful work. Thanks. All right, brother. I'll Have see a good you evening. You too. Thank you. Take care. You guys can check him out at uh, black.label.organics on Instagram. You can also check him out at uh, Bokashi Earthworks uh, on Instagram. Uh, And you can also check him out over at Brendan, I'm sorry, Russ.Brendan. There we go, Russ.Brendan on Instagram as well. Uh, Tons of great information on his Instagram, breaking down lots of different nutrients, wonderful other things. I know I'll definitely be out there on that Friday um, to check it out and uh, lots of wonderful pictures as well. And those nice frosty woods. It tastes good too, I can attest to that. So what's been up with you, uh, Coot? Oh, just I uh, decided to get, to minimalize my desk, my work environment. So I, uh, I got it down so it looks like, you know, it has a keyboard and a monitor and everything is, the rest of the desk is clear. So now I got to go get into it. It's coming tomorrow, the parts or pieces of stuff I need from Amazon to do what the uh, guys call cable management. I didn't know there was like a title for this, you know, tying up your cables so they don't show. So it looks like it's real minimalist uh, thing you're going for. So anyway. So I've you know, been uh, trying because it's uh, uh, it's one of those stand up desks. It has an electrical deal to raise and lower it, and what have you. So I had to figure out how to, I could attach all the cables and allow them to still the freedom to move. You know, with while this table uh, moves up and down. So anyway, I'm not an engineer by any stretch of the imagination. So. So a little bit earlier, you were talking about the micronutrients. Do you want to break that down a little bit? I know I'm a big fan of dosing. Oh, sure. Manganese okay. and molybdenum. Okay. Uh, molybdenates in order to boost some of the color. And if you actually have oh. your manganese too low, it actually inhibit your THC expression. So if everything else was perfect on your grow and your manganese is too low, you're, you're actually going to end up having, um, you know, not quite as high a yep. THC as that strain is potentially able to produce. I'll tell you who you want to talk to, and he's uh, is Dr. Foss. He has a product called TM7, and the TM stands for trace minerals. And of course, there's seven, like I mentioned. And his are the same seven. And if you don't mind, I'll run down. I mean, you can see what, where we're going with this. 
Okay, so you have sulfur, you have boron, you have cobalt, you have molybdenum, you have copper, iron, manganese, and zinc. Now, if you want to go to this page, bioag.com, and look under products, uh, and then you can look at the uh, for yourself. And what makes this different from, say, a product from ABC Fertilizers, we'll say, is that this has been chelated using his fulvic acid. So, and you're assured of the, well, bioavailability for number one. Yeah, TM7, there you go. And there's the technical uh, a PDF you can download on it. I've been using it for several years, probably 15 anyway. Pretty cool, huh? There's your numbers as far as your percentages. And it comes in two forms, a powder and a, a granule. So I guess probably for your needs, or in aquaponics, if you had a need, probably you'd want to go with the powder, right? Yeah, it's a lot easier to mix in that way and target into your dosages that way. And plus it has the fulvic and humic acids, which we're always needing in aquaponics yeah. as well helps reduce algae growth and everything else. It's good for your fish too. I know Dr. Faust actually did a bunch of research in aquaculture with shrimp production. So did uh, Dr. Rokosi, James Rokosi mm -hmm. uh, uh, did as well. Well, like I mentioned the other night, 50 years ago, almost, well, 72, uh, Dr. Faust, who was a young, I think he got his degree in 68. But anyway, he teamed up with uh, Dr. TM, TL Sen, S-E-N-N, who pioneered uh, the use of kelp meal and seaweed extract in the 50s after uh, it was introduced by MaxiCrop. That was the first commercial product you could buy that was a concentrate so farmers could add it to the water supply system. See what I mean? Solubility, is, it was the big sell point. And uh, he's the one that put them on the map. And so by 72, 20 years after that, um, he teams up with this young man, Dr. Foss, and they begin extracting humic and fulvic acid out of kelp, uh, out of the ocean, you know, the fronds as they're called. Is that amazing or what? I mean, at a time where how many people in the United States, I mean, forget people, how about how many science, soil scientists were talking about humic and fulvic acid, you know? So, I mean, they were really pioneers in the real sense of the word. We had someone in chat ask how to make it easier to get into the water. I like to add it to things like compost teas and things like that, where you're going to have it kind of brew for, you know, at least an hour or more uh, where it's going to stir in. It tends to work a lot better uh, than, than just adding it directly. Uh, it can stick to the sides a little bit when you add it just directly into the sun. Um, we had a, another question in chat. So is kelp and alfalfa from the feed store not good? Coot, coot, or question? No, coot. that's exactly what you want. You want alfalfa and if you buy pellets and that's becoming more standard for uh, uh, worker safety issues, okay? Try to find one that's not used uh, with a binder, which is always molasses or and a cheap form of molasses. So ask them if they have uh, 
molasses free pellets because and they use their natural juices in the alfalfa to hold it together but yeah that now that seed or seed seed alfalfa is exactly what you want and the alfalfa excuse me the kelp meal they sell i guarantee it's either going to be uh asl yeah and sea plants limited or it'll be their sub-brand called Lighthouse. It's not a sub-brand, but it's another marketing name. It's Lighthouse. But absolutely, that's what you want. It's right from a feed store, and you'll save a lot of money. Trust me. Because they're feeding My uh, chiropractor has 20 draft horses, you know, like the Clydesdale type. And part of their diet is daily doses of kelp. And they also feed them uh, basalt to keep uh, you know the, their bowel systems clean. And you can imagine how many uh, pounds of manure 20 draft horses can produce in a day. So I used to get him, uh, he'd bring it in to work in a pickup truck and I'd go pick up his pickup truck and come home and unload it and then run it through uh, you know composting and then turn it, turn it over and put it in the worm bins. See, I've never done a soil. You know what? I let the biology take care of it. I've never done a soil test. I can't even imagine doing it. We had another uh, question about, um, is there any good seed for seed sprout tea in what stage? I think they're good at all stages. And here's why. In around 19, 95 or so, I was still in the produce sector. So we used to get a lot of trade publications. And an article came through that most people wouldn't bother reading I mean, in the produce industry, right? So it's about how to sell more bananas, more oranges or something. But the article was uh, some research done down at UC Davis, which is the California's agricultural school, that eating broccoli sprouts was far more nutritious than eating broccoli. And I was hooked because I hate broccoli. So, but the point was that when a seed ger is germinated, a lot of changes come about. Enzymes are created. And because it's trying, it's, it has to survive on that seed or it, what it was encoded with before it gets a true set of leaves and a true root system. It can't feed, it has no root. So when we eat sprouts, you know how nutritious they are. So can imagine what, when you take that same material and puree it and add it to some water so that it's, you know, in a, a form that can be used. Can you imagine the power that you're adding to that, to that soil? I mean, there's your amino acids, there's your, your minerals, your, your uh, phytohormones, you know, Look, you can't put that in a bottle. I don't, you know, if you do, I, you do this, and I, I understand what people like Brandon are saying. You can't do it to scale. I get that. But I'm talking to the person trying to grow some plants for themselves, for medical uses. I don't care about, you know, commercial growers. They're going to do whatever it is they're going to do. And I don't give a shit. Okay, that's their thing. I'm talking to the person who wants to grow some nice plants in their home and have some good smoke. Fair enough. So my methods are, are strictly for the, the home grower. And all you'll have is the need to go get a bicycle and fill your time because you're never going to be dicking around your plants. 
You know, you're oh, not going to be in there with it. I've never owned a pH meter. I've never used a pH meter. I would have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I'd wear one though if it didn't look cool. You know, if I was going to do like a, a, a cannabis industry thing, you know, I'd want to be cool and have a, you know, a, a, a pH meter hanging off my belt like a buck knife, you know, out here in Oregon. So. Yeah, no, it's definitely yeah, good. I think sprouties are, that's how I got onto the barley malt. Because I was sprouting everything. There's a big chain called Bob's Red Mill. And they sell all kinds of legumes and, and grains and what have you. Well, they're factory stores here in Portland. And you can go there and they have the stuff in by, uh, what do you call it? Self-serve. Uh, you know, bins. You can measure out what you want. So I'd go there and buy five or six or more different kinds of seeds. And then there'd be a a quarter cup in each plastic bag and I'd set it down on the counter and they just look at me like the old man's lost his mind. So I was sprouting uh uh all beans, lima beans, you know, uh barley, wheat, all kinds of wheat, red wheat, white wheat, winter wheat, summer wheat, you know. And you know what I learned? It didn't matter one iota. It didn't matter a single iota. And then I was introduced to, you know, uh, Dickhead, you can buy this stuff at a home brew store. You can? Yes. It's called barley malt. It's ready to go. Yes. I've never sprouted a seed since. And once I got barley malt, because it had, someone's done, already sprouted it. That's all malting means is that it was germinated. And then they arrest the germination process. And that's what brewers use to make scotch and, uh, uh, a beer right so there you go but yeah i, I was a big advocate of this uh, ssts i thought it had a really snappy name you know but you couldn't you could not put it in a bottle how are you gonna how are you gonna stop it from fermenting and if you put in you know i mean then you now you're into manufacturing and why not just tell people how to do it and go get some beans and if you don't have mung beans and get some pinnos or navy beans or pinnow beans or whatever kind of beans they got, it doesn't matter. And you only want to grow them out, okay, of the taproot. That question is going to come up. In malting uh, barley, which is done, you can imagine the scale because every beer on the planet's made with malted barley. The seeds are germinated. And the taproot is only allowed to grow about one half the length of the kernel itself. Does that make sense? Okay. And then they, then it's arrested. You can do it at home. You can put it in your oven. That. I was going to ask you actually on that note, can you use right now, uh, anyone anywhere in the South, actually pretty much anywhere in the U.S., you have the, the deer feed, the corn feed. Um, is there anything that you can do with that as far as inputs? Well, the problem with corn is in, okay, it's a two-edged sword. First of all, um, it has wonderful properties. In fact, the first, um, oh, what's that category? It's one of the plant hormones, but zeatine is the primary one. Well, that was discovered in corn and they named it after it they gave it the latin name for corn which is zea so that's how you get the name zeatine so you, that's in there when you germinate it the problem is that 
germin germinating corn is really problematic and you get a lot of mold. And so um, it wouldn't be my first choice, but you can certainly go to a feed store and get some seeds. Uh, as long as the seed's intact, you're good to go. And then you want to do it just like any other seed. You soak it for what, 24 hours? And it, you've, we've all sprouted seeds, mung beans at least, right? So it's the same thing, except you're going to have to do it on a bigger scale. And it's a pure gold, first time. Or here's a better way. If you're a doubter, go to the grocery store and buy one of those uh, plastic boxes of fresh alfalfa sprouts. And you bring it home and you put it in an osterizer with some water, puree it, and then dilute it and try it. And if you think I'm full of crap, then you know you don't have to be bothered. There you oh. go. Easy peasy. There's your test. No, I just, I, it's something that I. No, I, I don't mean you. I mean anybody. I'm just saying that's a good way to test it is sure. just get uh, uh, something from the grocery store that already exists like that um or even really sprouted mung beans you know they sell bean sprouts uh for cooks you could get a bag of those and just puree it with some uh, good water and hit your soil yeah the uh i just had to go buy some organic soil went to the local nursery now that we're a little more settled uh, found the local nursery the mom and pop one so we cannot support uh, the box stores and they had a whole bunch of deer feed for sale and kind of got me thinking, you know, what could I make with that to, uh, you know, help my plants? Help well, what I would do with it, if you could uh, grind it up and you can, um, now you can put it in worm bins and it's an incredible food. Worm, commercial worm people add grains, not malted, but just regular grains ground up. Why? Because it makes you big, bigger. So in terms of length and girth, and who does, if you're selling fishing worms, that's a big selling point, right? So you can add the appropriate amounts. I'll be more happy to send you the data. Uh, but yeah, you add it to your worm bins, and now you're picking up all those enzymes and plant hormones uh, and all the other goodies that are there for cheap, cheap, cheap. Now, yeah. if you want to do corn, if you want to do corn, here's the way to do it. You want to get some burlap or some kind of a tarp of cloth, like maybe you know a canvas or something like that. You want to soak your corn for about a day and a half in clear water, and then you want to drain it really well, and you want to spread it on the tarp, and then you want to hydrate that tarp, top and bottom, and lay it out on your lawn. And then a couple of times a day, open it up and spray some water on it. You know, you want to keep it wet. How's that? Or moist. And that's the way they do it down south to make whiskey. Because you still got to, at some point, you have to sprout the, the corn to make corn mash. Okay, you grind it up after it's sprouted. And uh, so anyway, that's the, the basics of it. And that comes from a, a guy who's a genuine uh, moonshine guy. So now is there any difference between using like a sprouted corn versus a barley? Like what is what is the Well, 
Well, there is in the sense that because uh, I got to look it up because now it's going to drive me crazy. I can't believe the category of plant hormones that zeatine falls under. Hold on. I apologize. Yeah, no worries. Too old. Too old been smoking, smoking too much tonight. Let's see. Uh, zeatine. Thanks again for Brendan Rust for coming on earlier and uh, and talking with us. It's always fun hanging out and seeing him. I saw him the other week out in uh, Oklahoma City. So always fun to, to talk to him and, and learn from him. Cytokinin. Jesus Christ, Jim. Okay, so it was the first cytokinin uh, found around 1938, 1939. Like I said, so they gave it the Latin name of for corn, since they found it in corn, which is Zia, and then the teen was added, but that's where the name comes from. And so absolutely, and you're not, I'm not saying you can't find Zia teen in other forms. I don't know what they might be, but I promise you that it's gonna be in a plant. Um, so if buying even popcorn, if you buy like Orville Redenbacher's organic corn, you could sprout that. There you go. That's an inexpensive test. You get a, a bottle of that sometimes at a Costco or, you know, whatever, but make sure you get the organic and uh, yeah, give it a shot. So Brendan was talking earlier about sources of amino acids. Um, uh, we've talked quite a bit about sprouted barley being a good source. What other ones do you like? Uh, I know fish, was it fish sauce or uh, fish oil? Oh, yeah. Uh, any fish. <clears throat> so here's how fish extracts are made, like that Alaska stuff, Alaska fish extract or whatever. It's been around forever. You find it at Walmart or Home Depot or whatever. Okay, so the boats go out and they get a, a harvest or a load of fish and they bring it back. And it goes through the plant and the fillets are cut off. And so you're left with the skeleton of the fish and some pieces of flesh on there, right? And the tail and the head and all that. And those are collected and they're put into a big grinder. And then it's ground down to a very fine size. And then it's loaded up with water. And after a day or so, the uh, foam rises to the top. And that's got the bones, so they harvest that off, and now you got fish bone meal. Okay, we're getting getting ready here, and so then the uh, fish pieces, the whatever the flesh or whatever. Um, yeah, you just uh, run it through after a couple of three days. You let it run it run it through another grinder and gets everything down to a size that pours easily and smells like heck. Toss in some. Uh, stabilizers and preservatives and you know build a pallet of it and get over to costco right not costco but home depot so then you've heard the term fish hydro lysate right well that's where you do it with lactic uh acids excuse me lactobacillus acids and so it's actually fermenting and so you're leaving the the goodies of the fish intact, the amino acids, the all the reasons that you you wanted the fish to begin with, 
this is going to leave those relatively intact doing that. And that's why that product costs more than Alaska. It's kind of like hey, we're back to the uh, kelp and seaweed. You know, you can't, you can't compare Alaska to a high quality fish product that's done made with lactic acid or excuse me, lactobacillus, not lactic acid, but you get the idea. It is exactly the same thing. They're two different products made from the same material, but the approach is completely, uh, you know, opposite. One is a commercial. We got to get rid of this shit. And if you, and you think about drawing animals, yeah, put on some uh, stuff that smells like fish. You'll have every raccoon, squirrel, you know. Oh, yeah, good stuff to use outdoors. That's really smart thinking, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Um, What's that? I, I know it. I never thought of it in that context, but you're definitely right on that one. Um, yeah. Any, any other good uh, secret worm foods? We uh, Somebody asked in chat that, that you want to recommend uh, for worm bins? Well, anything that's good for your plants. I mean, you know, like alfalfa is good. The main thing with those types of products is you want to sprinkle it on top. Don't cover it. And let the microbial action work from the bottom up. Because if you bury it, then it could possibly start composting because there's so much nitrogen in alfalfa and the, that's the last thing you want. Not that you're gonna kill all your worms, but you're gonna keep them out of the top zone and that's, you know, you're gonna suppress, you know, it, it just screws things up. So use things that aren't gonna, and if you do, if it's a plant material and it's minimally processed like alfalfa pellets or powder, then sprinkle it on top and you'll see that it's gone you know, in a day, maybe sometimes a day and a half. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And then do that once a week. And uh, so what you're doing there is that all the goodies that are in alfalfa that we want to see, all you know, the whole array of, what, 83 elements, you know, it's got them all in the right balance. So the manganese is in the right balance to the boron, which is in the right balance to the phosphorus. You know, you got all that down. But beyond that, you're talking about at least 350 enzymes. We still haven't discussed its uh, element profile as far as, uh, you know, phytohormones and uh, growth enhancers and part of the uh, chitinase salicylic acid pathway uh, immune system. So you, the, all that gets added into the worm castings. So that when you use the worm castings to build your soil or to amend your plant, sprinkle it on top every whatever, few weeks or whatever, to give it to, it's all about, don't think in terms of chemistry. This is botany. This is about biology. You want to keep that soil bio, biologically alive. And that's, that's how you grow big plants. I have the picture I'll be more than happy to share, but you know, I always kind of get, well, you know, they look too big or you know, how are you going to harvest that? How are you going to cut all that leaf off? So I don't know. We'll, we'll muscle through it. Let's see. You let it dry and you hang right. And then you clip it. Don't you have clippers? Anyway. We, had a, we had a question. I heard Coop mention alfalfa and kelp tea a while back. 
Uh, I can't recall. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the old uh, Coots Fix-It mix. Sorry, I wrote that one 11 years ago, I think. At least 10. All right, so we're talking five-gallon paint bucket. It's easy to get. Get a clean one. Uh, And you're going to put in water. And then you're going to add one cup of alfalfa. And you're going to add one quarter cup of kelp. That's it. I know, real complicated, isn't it? And then uh, I would now add, because I didn't know about it when I wrote it 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, I'd probably add a, a cup of alfa, uh, excuse me, aloe vera. Uh, like a good brand to buy is alfalfa is not a cacti. Alfalfa is a succulent. And beyond that, it's also a member of the lily family. So one of the biggest names in the American production is a product called Lily of the Desert. And their production is down in the Rio Grande Valley on the Mexican-Texan uh, border. And that's where it's produced. And they have organic forms. And if you buy the gallon, you're under $17. Now, remember, there's 100 and... Wait a minute. How many cups are there in it? I wanted to add one ingredient to that mix and, and go ahead and say adding a little spirulina helps a little bit with that as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, it works synergistically with the kelp and, and really helps enhance that whole mix uh, on top of all the wonderful benefits as well. So and you have what? Okay, Jesus Christ, I can't believe I don't know this. So you have 16 cups in a gallon. So a gallon costs you, let's say, a dollar a cup, and you're going to add a, a cup to this. That's your most expensive item is the uh, uh, aloe vera juice. And then uh, you can bubble it or just stir it with a stick, you know, and keep it stirred up. And then the next morning or, you know, give it 12 hours or 14 hours or something, doesn't matter. And then do a strain and drain. Now, remember that muck that's left over still retains 50 to 55% of its goodies. So it's not junk. You can top dress your plants outdoors, your indoor plants. You could uh, top dress your cannabis plants. It's not trash. Uh, you could also put it on, let it dry out, and put it in your warm bin. I mean, there's a lot of things to do with it, so it's not junk. So anyway, there's your tea. And I've never seen anybody come back that didn't weren't really happy about how it changed their plant because they were in a this or that. And people are saying, well, you know, you need more potassium, you know, whatever, you need some more, you know, something, uh, hocus pocus, you know, just, yeah, put some kelp and alfalfa and call it a day. Now I would, I would add aloe vera and spirulina to it. Now you got a perfect concoction. What, uh, what, are nothing. Some, what are some of the other good inputs you recommend for people uh, uh, for those type of repair serums or, you know, oh man, my plant's just not looking quite right. What, now, I'm a big fan of lactobacillus or lacto, the, the super labs with the spirulina um, for, for kind of a fix it button. Um, what, are, what are you like on top of the stuff that you just mentioned? Uh, actually, let's see. I like, I like doing uh, barley teas. You know, taking, because uh, I have a, a, a mill I use for, well, I used to, I can't eat anymore, a uh, mill for doing wheat. So I take the barley malt which is, it looks like, you know, cause it's intact, the grain is intact. And so I maybe do like a quarter cup, put it through the mill and turn it into a real fine powder. 
and then add that to a couple of gallons of water and it makes a real kick ass. Uh, I bet you if you mix that with uh, lacto uh, products like you're uh, using, I bet if you added some uh, with alfalfa, uh, excuse me, barley kicking into high gear, I mean, massively. It's worth a shot. I mean, hell, you can go buy barley over at the home brew store for 80 cents a pound or something. <laughs> so what are what are some of your favorite ways to control insects and pests? It's definitely something that we haven't had a chance to talk about with you much. We've talked a lot about the soil and the nutrients, but we haven't talked a lot about pest management. I, I know you have a lot of experience with it. What, what are some of your uh, your go-to methods for pest management? Um, mm. for all? The first one would be uh, saponins. And we can, you know, alfalfa has a lot of saponins too. So when you you want to spray alfalfa tea on your plants, and I strongly advise that, one of the things you're going to pick up is the saponins, and saponins destroy the, the ecoskeleton of the insect, exposing it to the elements, and they die. Or they can't survive. It'd be like you having your skin ripped off. Not a, you know, not a real healthy way to go there. Um, so, but the, uh, saponins, you find saponins in uh, soap nuts, the shells that people use to make their own. Uh, we all know what soap nuts are, but you, there's other forms of saponins. I guess there's a product that has, I think, X or, it's either X and 70 in the name. I, uh, I don't know, anyway, you can find saponin products and the saponin is the saponin is the saponin. And saponins like that are more concentrated. So watch the directions carefully, uh, but use that as an IPM. So I'd spray my plants every week in veg and I'd spray them every week in flower until you're no longer comfortable. I'll leave that discussion for other people. Uh, then the, uh, when I have to bring out the big guns, I've got organic uh, neem out of India. And I emulsify it with, uh, well, I'll use the brand names, but uh, a product like uh, Protec, Dynagrow Protec, which is potassium silicate in a water solution. They all, it's all Agsil 16. Uh, but anyway, so I emulsify it with that and I put it with some water and I put in uh, some surfactant of some kind, however you get there. And then I hit them with that. But here's the, here's the whole thing like with mites, because that's the one that we have in the Northwest. I apologize. I don't have firsthand experience with the aphids and white flies, but I can speak to, because I know this one in and out. But with any uh, invader, you need to go get solid information on its reproductive cycle. So let's use red mites for starters. Their reproductive cycle is 72 hours. So we want to spray or we want to do whatever it is we're going to do. And then on the third morning, we want to reapply. And then three mornings after that, we want to reapply. Now, most advisors, advice you're going to get is say you're good after three. I I go four, I go four applications. Because if anybody thinks that they're gonna be able to spray their plants one time and get rid of anything, they're delusional. 
that product does not exist. I mean, you got eggs, you have larvae, you have no idea what whether this material that you're using is going to have any effect on. See what I'm saying? You have to break the reproductive cycle. That's the key. More than anything else, that's the key. And you got to be really consistent. You can't be lackadaisical. Set it on your on your uh, phone as a reminder to make obscene noises or something every morning when you're supposed to do whatever it is you're doing. And a lot of those, a lot of the preventative sprays you're, you're looking to do right before sundown. Mm-hmm. I know I actually have mine set for midnight. My lights turn off at 12 to 20. I think yep. it is at 30. So um, it helps with, um, you know, hey, I, if I need because to spray something, cool. if I don't need to spray anything, great. I would say 99% of these, whatever we're talking about, equal opportunity science here. The molecules are made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. That's it. So they break down with light. So like if you do wisely like you're doing, you do it as close as you can safely before the lights go out, it's gonna be on your leaves longer. So you got a fighting chance of being effective. If you could do it in the morning, you might say it's over in two hours. All the compounds are like went went away. They they, uh, disintegrated into carbon, hydrogen and oxygen, same kind of shit that's in the air, you know what I mean? So uh, there's not a lot of bang there. So that's really good advice. Do it, apply all these things. I mean, uh, on, Spraying, I don't, I can't speak to the other. Oh, yeah, and it, the soil it depends, thing. depends on your scale, too. But in a, you know, especially for home grows, absolutely, you should be doing them right before. For most cases, not all, but 90 95% of your stuff you want to do right before lights out, um, uh, to make sure that you're not burning your plants. Some, some certain sprays actually can make your plants more photosensitive and react mm. more severely as well. Uh, too higher light. Uh, it's also why it's important to use laser thermometers to check your temperature, your leaf surface. Mm-hmm. That's what matters for VPD is leaf surface temperature uh, and humidity and airflow. If you don't have those three things, then you're not getting an accurate VPD reading. Right. And the champion of all of them. Now, I would say this is more for not a lot of experience, but at least season, let's say four or five cycles under their belt, something like that. And they got everything down, you know, things are pretty well firing on, you know, all pistons. And everything. The king of uh, pest control, at least against herbivore insects, has to be uh, green, wheat, uh, green wing larva. Uh, no, lace wing, green lace wing. I'm sorry, green lace wing larva. Nothing, I mean, it's like they're piranhas. And they go after mites, they go after larvae, they're just, they're brutal. And they're not expensive. Now, as far as sourcing, the source I had, he retired after 25 years. So, I mean, uh, his company's no longer in business, so I can't even speak to where you should buy them. But, uh, yeah. There's one. They're They're amazing. Yeah, they're pretty voracious. You can also see another. There's a mummified one from a uh, uh, Aphidillus irvi. 
Well, where do you get yours? Um, well, I get most of my stuff through BioCat uh, or one oh, store. Okay. Through, I, I was getting a lot through Arbico, but started to shift away from them after some bad issues. Marty and I both had some some not so mm. great shipments this year, but I think it partially has to do with the postal service more than anything else. To be honest with you, did. Did the name March Bio? Yeah, what was the name of this company? Biologicals ever come up in your world? March Biologicals? No. Oh, he was here in Portland. His name was Brad March. And he started out with ladybugs back in like 84. And he built up a really nice business. Uh, you know, because all the garden centers, he carried his ladybugs. And then later he added like, you know, you've been in places where they have hot dogs cooking in a, a store and you open the door and you get your hot dog out kind of thing. We had one of those, except it was temperature control and he had packets of different, like we're talking about uh, the uh, larva. So, you know, and anyway, we got it up and finally somebody offered that old expression more, so much money, he couldn't refuse it. And he said, yeah, I, I could retire. So he did. And uh, it's kind of sad because he always had really good products. You know, he's a real honorable kind of guy. You could talk to him, call him up and talk to him on the phone. And he was working with like uh, wineries. And I mean, he was on a big scale. He wasn't doing just, uh, you know, four tenths and a hope. Yeah. I, uh, wanted to also quickly plug um, I just did an article uh, with Lampoon Magazine in Italy they do a lot of interesting hemp content um, you can check out wow. their, their latest publication uh, I have an article in their written uh, one as well as the website here at um, you can check out uh, all about aquaponic cannabis production we have some pictures of different facilities and some other cool stuff so definitely check that out um, yeah I will thank you That looks like mine. Kind of get uh, get some overseas uh, exposure as well. It's kind of fun. Yeah. They're Somebody cool. from Indiana told me something interesting today. He said there's people out there that use something called the Coots mix. They have no idea who Clackamas Coot is. I said that's funny. That's I mean that's actually really good. <laughs> that's actually funny so uh you wouldn't believe how many times i've been led to the top of the hill let's get us put a soil out with your name on it we can do this no you can't <laughs> you know you can't make a good soil so you just be another one of the also brands you know i think the key to, to good soil is making sure that you get the right microbes and that's why I love all the work that people like Chris Trump and stuff are doing as far as yeah. making, uh, you know, in ways that people can utilize to collect more natural biology in their local area. So, well, we disagree on semantics. I didn't say you couldn't create a good soil. What I said was you can't buy a good soil. <laughs> Okay. I mean, 
No, you don't have any in Oklahoma. Everybody should go do a, the 10 minute tour if they live anywhere near a soil mixing plant. It'll become really crystal clear. <laughs> the challenge is to even make it suitable on any level. All right, think about it for a minute. So one batch is an entire truckload worth of material. So you've got 22 pallets with 55 bags per pallet. So I'll let you do the arithmetic. Well, figure, okay, here's the, here's the easiest way. Each pallet position is going to have two yards. That's why they're called two-yard totes, interestingly enough. Okay, so uh, if you bag it, that's about 55, 56 bags. So let's go 22 pallets at two yards per pallet. So that's 44 yards. I picture that one in your mind for a minute. And it goes into a, a machine that has an auger that runs horizontally. And so it's dumped in through top feeding uh, comb bottom tanks and then keyed into the pad that controls it. The operator is going to key in what product they're making. So that will disperse the, the, uh, the perlite, whatever is in that soil mix. Okay. If these comb bottom tanks will, will emit the right amount across the length of this uh, thing. I remember we're talking 44 yards in one machine. Okay, let's start. So the thing starts to spin. It's an auger. It spins for eight minutes, eight minutes. Now the material is discharged into a, a, a tub, we'll say for lack of a better word, because now it has to go over to the machine that bags it. Okay, so it's going to be dumped in by a hopper. You're going to dump it into the hopper. Now it's going to spit out bags that go down a conveyor belt. That That's when the first humans touch this thing because they're going to stack it on the pallet till they get the right amount to go over and be shrink-wrapped. So just interrupt me anywhere you want. Please explain to me where the quality goes in on this process. You know my drift? The only difference in the soil is the label on the bag. I promise you. I promise you. I don't care how nice the salesman is at the Canacon or the Weedcon or whatever, you know, whatever deal it is. It's just made in a factory with very, very expensive machinery. A big mixer like the one that uh, SunGrow has down here where I live. It's one of the biggest ones west of the Mississippi. They probably have half a million in it. Oh, you haven't trained anybody yet. Okay. Oh, that doesn't include the bagging, the bagging operation. <laughs> That's just for the mixer and all the tanks above it. And those got to be loaded. You know, you get the idea. There's a lot that goes on at a, at a mixing plant. This isn't guys on a tarp you know, stirring it around with hose going, gee, I hope we have a good crop this year, you know. Don't want to bust anybody's bubble, but. Well, what beneficial insects do you like to use as your go-to team? I'm a huge fan of rove beetles and aureus. They seem to work really well together uh, as kind of a hit squad uh, and bigger grows. 
Um, what are some of your favorite uh, beneficials to use? Well, the rose certainly is at the top of the list. Um, and I've even, I, I realized later is a moot point. Um, the larvae don't do much in a worm bin. Um, but there's, there's a, good, a good place to start is the worm bin. And let's say you're doing a, a semi-serious amount. Let's say, let's say you're using an a 800-gallon pot. So that's going to give you four yards. Yeah, four pallets of uh, material, that volume. So you have the, the mass, the biomass of, of, of the material that you're using, the comp we'll say compost, hopefully. And the benefits of those insects will be moved around that material. That's another thing that worms do is that as they move through the mass, they're, they're carrying stuff from this part of the pile over here. So you don't have to worry about, you know, getting a pitchfork in there and helping them. I mean, they got this down, really. And so um, all the things that we can add on top that will get rid of and, and, not, and not harm the colonies of worms, we can add so that when we mix our soil, we're starting with a much better material than getting a bag of something from, you know, ABC uh, Garden Supply and cutting open a bag and dumping it, crossing your fingers, you know, and hoping for the best. I still maintain that if people would use uh, fruiting blocks from their local uh, mushroom grower, they could turn a lot of this mediocre soil into much, much better soil just inoculating it with mycelium from the spent blocks. And remember, that's an agricultural waste. They have to pay to have that hauled away. So you could approach them and get that for free. And so you're taking somebody's waste and, and turning to be able to turn your uh, purchase into something better for no investment. That's got to be worth it. Even just the, watching the science behind it. Imagine uh, seeing mycelium growing all over your, uh, I don't want to pick a name, but ABC soils, okay? And, uh, you know, within like a week or so, you got the things covered with white mycelium. And, you know, you're dancing. You let that uh, do its thing. And now when you run it, uh, well, if it say it's compost, let's say you bought some compost from a supplier there in, in Oklahoma. And you, and you realize that, okay, it's good. It can be better, but it's good. Just think of the small investment you could make and turning that number seven on a scale from one to 10, right? That seven compost and turn it into a 9.8 with the spent uh, mushroom blocks. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's something I think a lot of people are, are just kind of getting turned on to is those um, mushroom blocks for their compost. Uh, do you want to talk to people about that? Because I think it's something that's a, a readily available resource. A lot of people have a chance to, to really learn about. Yeah. The first one I it would recommend is the man's name. 
Trad Cotter, and Trad is spelled with uh, two D's, Trad Cotter. And he has a business in South Carolina called MushroomMountain.com. And he has a line of products made from mushrooms, uh, extracts, if you will, you know, lion's mane, cordyceps, that kind of stuff. And then he also, uh, in real life or face-to-face -face life, he uh, offers uh, foraging classes and, and teaching people how to forage. And I mean, he's really about giving back. He's not a, a shyster or anything like that at all. And uh, he wrote a book and I encourage anybody who wants to grow better plants, whether that's, I don't care what you're growing, it doesn't matter. The name of the book is Organic Mushroom Farming and Soil Mycoremediation. He is one of the leading experts around the world. He's part of that movie, Fantastic Fungi, that's gotten a lot of press. He's in, uh, he was one of the key people in that movie or that documentary, but he's one of the leading experts on uh, soil uh, microremediation. And I mean, doing stuff like inoculating burlap, like squares of burlap, or maybe they cut them after they're inoculated and colonized. Then they're shipped. And then you can lay them out in a field uh, in between your plants and inoculate your soil with mycelium. I mean, how fucking cool is that? And uh, he's got some really neat stuff. Uh, you should really check him out. And if you're really interested in that topic, in my opinion, that was the reason I bought his book in the first place about three years ago. It was the first book that had the words mushroom farming and organic in the same sentence. So I went, I got to buy this one. And I was I was on a flight. I was flying down to uh, Florida to go look at Karanja trees, believe it or not. Uh, orchards down there, Karanja. And so I got into this book, man, it blew my mind. Uh, and since then, I've recommended it to uh, as many people that are interested because it's that good. Get the digital version if you're one of those that likes the tablet. Uh, or he has, I think it's also one's ring bound. And a regular standard, uh, you know, print, print, printed version. Well worth the investment. Um, that's that's the guy. There's the how tos and why fours and should you and the whole nine yards. Well, do you have anything uh, else you want to add? If not, I think we'll we'll wrap it up here in a couple of minutes. Getting ready to harvest. Yeah, tell us about what's going on in your garden, man. Well, I'm pretty boring. It's the same plant, you know. So, uh, what can I say? Um, yeah, things went well. We're uh, keeping our fingers crossed. <clears throat> Trying to go to the middle of October. In my part of the world, around Portland, north northwest Oregon, you're out of the ground by the 15th, or you're just rolling dice because the rain season is upon us. Our, our rain is measured from October 1st to September, does that tell you anything? To September 31st, that's the annual rain year. 
for measurement. So yeah, it's the first year I moved up here, it started raining October 1st and the next day without measurable rain was in January, the middle of January. So October, yeah, three and a half months straight. Here you go. You want to live in the temperate rainforest? Here you go. Here's a good dose. I came from Southern California. So it was pretty exciting. But yeah, that's always the big thing up here in this part. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of pockets, you know, the banana belt thing. They, they exist. And for the most part, this is the time of years when you're, you know, your nerves are, you, like you, you live and die by the weather on your uh, on your cell phone, right? So when's the rain coming? You know, where are we going to get? And then not just the rain, you got the cold. Because I mean, we're already now that said the highs is is getting around the mid fifties. So at night, you know, you know the drill. You've grown outdoors. So. Anybody that's grown in Oregon, that's why the big growers are all down south in southern Oregon. They got much better. They can. They got. They got a much better roll of the dice than we do. So you take what you get. You know, you cut it off on the fifteenth, and hey, we did okay this year. That kind of thing. Hey, it's just for us, you know, we're not, we're not trying to become the next big supplier at the dispensary, you know. It probably has too much aroma. Well, we wouldn't be able to sell this. This smells a lot different. Well, I think that's the missing component. A lot of these people have their nutrient regimen down, no doubt, without, a, you know, and have been doing it for a long time. But if you take that and you combine it with some of the additional microbial inputs, it'll really scream, even if you already have your system down, you know? Well, I think the thing a lot of people need to realize is that they can hybridize um, what they're doing already with, you know, a lot of these newer practices to get even better results. I guess I'll just continue being a cantankerous old coot, but. I think that the the hardcore organic food producers that I dealt with in the produce sector, this wasn't a hobby. This was their livelihood. You know, handling 200 acres of Roma tomatoes with less fanfare than some of the cannabis farm, commercial cannabis farms I've been on. It's like, I wasn't joking the other night, man. I would come up with a new name, like, really? You know, the question mark, that'd be the name of the company. That'd be the name of uh, Coots Consulting. Really? <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff, I just look at the plants and go, what What did you do? Well, you've been there. I mean, you've been to, like, you're called in to fix something that after you're there within 30 seconds, you realize you can't fix this. Yeah, take a machete. And start on that end, you get here and just take the son of a bitch down and sterilize this thing. Right? <laughs> anyway, you know, I don't know. I came up in a different time where you didn't hold people's hands. Or no one's there to hold your hand. You know, so hey, if you can't cut it, then you know, get a job at Walmart as a greeter. Take that money you make and uh, find somebody who knows that what, what they're doing and you can buy from them. There's your solution. Because the amount of time that you're gonna spend with all this jibber jabber running around with a pH meter and a 
a stack of, uh, you know, soil reports that you have no understanding of, at the very least. Um, well, yeah, you're, you're open to every crook and story that comes down the pipe. I definitely think that that's one of the advantages to the, the SAP analysis. In fact, you can actually get SAP analysis kits now through Lamote, who's one of the better uh, nutrient uh, suppliers, uh, and start doing a lot of this stuff on site, which, which can help you now. What you have to take into account is, is that they can vary over the course of the day, same as bricks and, and all this other stuff. So you kind of have to look at it as more of a macro uh kind of view on the data sets but it, what's nice is when you do that you can add something and then test three to five days later and go okay well did that actually end up in the tissue or is it still being broken down what is the release time because there's a lot of these organic inputs that people just haven't figured out what the actual realistic release times are uh, in terms of what that translates into into plant availability and it's, it's some of the nicer stuff that you know because of uh the virus that won't be named uh, and some other stuff. Um, uh, the, the cost of a lot of this type of rapid testing equipment's really come down. I think that we are going to have, you know, the ability to test for a lot of this stuff here in the, in the near future, uh, if not already, and for, for very cheap, you know, even on the home scale. Well, consider this for a minute. <clears throat> I follow technology pretty close in terms of where it's going. And it's no secret that Apple is working on and has been for several, well, almost years, multiple, more than two years, where the iWatch will be able to monitor your blood sugar level. And you imagine how important this will be for uh, insulin-dependent diabetics. It could literally be what separates whether you live or you don't, by being able to have that level of control over your uh, blood sugar. So my point is that with the technology that they're adding into the phones, with the chips and everything, I don't think it's too far off that maybe not Apple, doesn't have to be Apple, but a developer could use one of their devices to do soil analysis. Because if you can measure somebody's blood, you know, in the sugar level without a piercing. I'm a diabetic. And I can tell you, I get sick and tired of stabbing. You got to go, you know, switch hands. Like all the fingers get tough. And then, you know, so then you got to switch over here and, you know, start poking this hand for a couple of weeks. But just think about it. If, if the technology is being developed that can do that level of analysis, I'm just interested to see what will somebody else pick up that ball and take it in different directions, which is what always happens. Imagine being able to do your soil analysis or whatever, your feed analysis, you feed your animals, let's say it's livestock operation. I mean, any number of areas that would benefit from that level of control that fits in your pocket. That's my only point. Anyway, have a good evening and uh, yeah, get those teas going. Sprouted teas is the way uh, for the home grower. There's, I mean, forget the crap at the grocery store. Do it yourself. So I had a question for you on that with the those uh, malted barley. 
Um, could you mix uh, insect frost and stuff like that during that, or would it be better to combine that after the fact? That was something I wanted to ask you about that. Well, refresh my memory. What, what is, is it in the frost that, that you're wanting? Is it the chitin? Well, you're trying to unlock the chitin. It's basically increased the chitin on top of what would be in the 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 uh, hmm. barley. Okay, well, let me give you a couple of things to ponder, and then you'll be able to, because I'm not really sure, but here you go. So chitin is the acetyl form of glucosamine. So it's a pretty hard uh, compound. That's what's used for, uh, chitin is what's used for surgery from uh, the suture, both external as well as internal surgery. But it dissolves and there, anyway, there's reasons. It's been around since like 1880s that it's been used as, um, as uh, whatever they call that. Uh, now suture uh, thread. So it will dissolve, but man, think about how long it takes. So adding it to your tea would be good, I would say, for distri distribution. But its benefit probably won't manifest for several days. That's what I would guess. Or maybe you could start like uh, soaking it like a week before. Maybe that's the answer. Because it does, it does dissolve. Like I said, like you know, when at some point you your your uh, suture heals, and you go to the doctor, and they pull, pull out the sticky points, or whatever it's called, you know, the, the ends. That's the one that uh, the man who uh, uh, moved the science forward in nineteen twenty or twenty or twenty two, uh, Albert Hoffman, Mr. LSD, thing. He, uh, at the age of 22, was awarded a PhD from Cologne University for his work and being able to show the world or the world of chemists what chitin looked like in terms of its, not the formula that was already done, but it was the molecular structure. And then he went to work immediately, like the next day, went to work for Sandoz in Switzerland and the rest is history. 16 years later, he discovered LSD and got up to 23 and it was nothing but, because he wasn't looking for a psychedelic, he was looking for a migraine. Didn't they treatment. make it 1939, I think? They first synthesized it, but they didn't have any exposure to it until, was it 43, 42? Yeah, and then one night it was raining and he was at home alone. And he, so he went to this forgotten project that had, you know, nothing had come out of it. And he grabbed uh, pack number 25. So that's where the name uh, or the number came from. It has no esoteric. It's in his book called LSD, My Problem Child. Classic, just classic. Now he talks about, I mean, he's, he's got pictures there with Timothy Leary and with uh, Ken Kesey, you know, the pranksters and that whole group out of uh, Eugene. The Merry Pranksters, um, Mountain Girl, and Jerry Garcia. Yeah, it's a cool book. But he was he was not in pursuit of a psychedelic. He was trying to find a, 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 a migraine headaches. 
And uh, later, when when he did the work in '58, he was invited by this uh, uh, group, international group, to do the research on peyote buttons. Excuse me, uh, magic mushrooms from Oaxaca, psilocybin. And it was him that named it. Uh, He's the one that Maria, named uh, Maria psilocybin and psilocin. It was Maria Sabina, right? Yeah, from her, right. Yeah. But he didn't get it from her. They were flown to France, the spores. And then he was in Switzerland and they were, went to a, I wouldn't call it secret, but a location uh, where he worked uh, for the next couple of years. But yeah, he's the one that co uh, coined the term uh, psilocin and the other one, psilocybin. I just think that's amazing that in one lifetime, this man was in a 20 year period, did both things. That's pretty amazing. But anyway, in his book, LSD, My Problem Child, he clearly came in uh, his last years, he lived here in, up in uh, Seattle uh, in a very uh, beautiful setting. But he, he became very much uh, that psilocybin was a far better agent because of the problems in man, manufacturing associated with uh, LSD. You know, you got, you know, bathroom cooks and kind of like the guys making gin back in the Prohibition era, you know. Good luck. How's that working out for you? So uh, even the guys that we out of Laguna, the Brotherhood on the Orange Sunshine, this is their testimony at their trial, not me, that you couldn't charge them with LSD because they were actually making another rye ergo called uh, ALD, also isolated by Dr. Hoffman. And they threw that one out of the, you know, the judge. He wasn't going to hear that shit. But they also came out at the trial and discovered that they were adding arsenic and strychnic to the recipe, strychnine, so that when you started coming on to the LSD, that it gave you a steeper ramp. So you know, got got you all excited and shit. But yeah, they were high dosing. They were dosing it up with, I mean, really questionable materials. This is their testimony not me making it up so you can find all about it yeah look up ald versus lsd and you that'll get you into the whole rabbit hole what's his name oh tim sands i think and i can't remember the other guy's name yeah they were the ones that the this new agency that nixon invented dea this was their first uh prize it was when they went after these two guys. They were like all behind the whole international. You could go to Goa, India and find Orange Sunshine. I mean, is that crazy? We, uh, Kud is going to be one of the speakers at the second annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference. He's going to be helping talk to us about soil science. We got all kinds of cool stuff um, uh, going on. Uh, people from Africa, Switzerland, Sweden, um, uh, Colombia, uh, multiple KNF speakers, Vietnam, um, uh, all over the world, uh, commercial, two commercial producers from Canada, 
um, uh, hemp grower growing aquaponic commercial hemp in Texas. Uh, we have uh, Murray Hollum and Dr. Leonard Wilson from Australia. Uh, we have multiple panels with awesome uh, moderators. We have Kevin McKernan talking about the soil science and the, uh, the microbes in the soil from a DNA aspect, which I think is a little bit more accurate than some of the other methods that people are doing um, to try to understand that. Uh, and a whole bunch more. Uh, Angela Tenenbrock talked to us about biosecurity and the importance of just keeping the place clean and, and putting up barriers to prevent issues from getting in your facility in the first place. Um, and a whole bunch of other awesome speakers. So uh, definitely check us out uh, live on the Poem Ponics YouTube channel for free uh, the whole weekend, uh, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., uh, November 13th and 14th. So be sure to check that out. One last thing. Um, for several years, I collected white papers using software for that at, at, by, at university level. Melinda is the name of the app anyway so i have a library with hundreds of and hundreds of white papers from universities and research so i found one that was published in 2001 you're going to love this and it discusses uh cloning as the it's incorrectly called in the cannabis world but it cites work going all the way back at OSU to 2003 and i was curious if you're interested i'll send it to you i mean it's a it's dry as you know, sawdust trying to get through it, but at least it gives you an idea of how this thing got started at a commercial level was at, at the turn, really the turn of the century. So, uh, sure. yeah, and the salicylic acid was the only one. The other two that are widely used, IBA and IAA, weren't discovered until 1932 or 33 at Oxford. And they, they named IAA the other one was elusive, and it wasn't named until 1966, 35 years later. And that's IBA, endoalbutric acetic acid. But the first one, uh, endoacetic acid, the one that's in many, many of the retail you know, stuff. In a good high school lab with somebody you know, who wasn't, you know, who was like serious student, good recreate it in the lab this is a look it up sometime ia endoacetic acid like what you know like if they're charging how much for this yeah yeah but um anyway you can buy that stuff from like what uh, luna and i were talking about and you we talked about before from uh, fido and you can buy you know pure ia or iba or salicylic acid but back to my original so uh, cloning got started when the man who created Bayer, financed research at uh, University of Washington Puyallup in the late, in, which, and then also uh, Oregon State University. And so that's where, then so it was released in the early 20s. And so that was the only one available. Of course, that was the standard. So and to this day, you go to commercial nurseries and that's, that's the one they use. Hormex is the, uh, uh, the brand name that grew out of that research. So that's how it's done. A company finances it. The university does the work. They publish their papers in. It's sold or however it's transferred to the person or entity that gave the money. And now they own it. That's how it's been done. And that's how it's done today.
and unfortunately it's companies like Monsanto and Bayer Soil Science and Monsanto that, you know, uh, finance most of the research. And, okay, like the one you've seen, NAA, NAPTA, acetic acid. That's strictly a, a synthetic. Plants do not uh, generate NAA. It was originally uh, patented by Monsanto in the 50, early 50s as a pesticide. I'm not joking. And now, and then it got discovered, you know, you could use this stuff to root stuff. Oh, okay. Well, we'll make it a rooting compound. So uh, just remember that, you know, when people talk about a product that has NAA in it, that they're, you know, it's a pesticide, not a very good one either, or a safe one, I mean. So I don't know why these won't root. I just can't understand it. So. My recipe was, you know, you get a bottle of uh, a pint of lily of the desert organic, dump it into a bowl, add a tablespoon of kelp, and I forget, no, a teaspoon or two of fulvic acid from Dr. Foss, dioic, and let that sit for about a day and a half, and then you use a funnel and put it back in the bottle, and now you got rooting compound, and keeping the back of the refrigerator to last about a year, and a pint is enough to do about a thousand cuts. So there you go. There's your now you got all three. You got salicylic acid, you got IAA, and you got IBA for pennies. A whole pint for under ten dollars. See? Organics are cheap. Oh yeah. All right. And uh, you can how, how could people find out more information about you or if they want to watch? I know we've done lots of talks on my show with you and as well as Fumador's channel. Uh, any other ones that you want to shout out or, or anything else you want to shout out before we go? Oh, um, Jeremy Soba of Build a Soil fame. Have you seen his channel lately? He's been working on a new facility, I saw. Yeah, go check out his channel at YouTube. He has about 70 how-to videos. And he has a, an associate who's a professional videographer. It's like they're made really, really well, you know, lead-ins and music. And I mean, you just tell somebody knows what they're doing. That wouldn't be me, but, you know. So anyway... Um, he wants to do an interview with me because that's how he got started was, uh, well, he just took the stuff I wrote and turned it into a, by any definition, a rather successful business, which was cool. Cause I, I was retired. I mean, I'm, you know, when I met him, I was like 61. I wasn't looking for a career, certainly not, you know, Selling products to cannabis growers. I'd already, you know, been in produce and logistics, and you know, I already knew, I already had my fill of assholes. I didn't like to. They, they, Let me try a different set. Maybe they're better. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, he's geared towards the the home producer. You know, the person that wants to grow a few plants. I don't. I mean, I don't know his business. We don't. I'm not. I'm not involved. I'm not a, a partner or anything. 
But he did attack, that one idea I had called Gnarly Barley. And uh, I donate a, a third of my piece for reforestation projects around the world. So, so far we've planted like 6,000 trees. So that's, I feel pretty good about that. So it's an international agency that uh, facilitates the purchase of the saplings and Nice. This is something I'm I'm familiar with because I've been you know familiar with uh, growing tree saplings, uh, Japanese lace maples and what have you. So, so I'm an old uh, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, commercial nursery guy. We had to laugh when we saw the cannabis thing and the way it got started here when it went legal. <laughs> You know, I've seen a lot. I mean, a lot greenhouses in my life. I saw greenhouses as you spent how much money? You know, panels that moved so you could like run your nighttime during the day. I mean, a quarter million dollars for a fucking greenhouse. I mean, really? That doesn't exist in the real world. You know, it's like completely like not even in the realm of discussion. Like, Comes up with this shit. Uh, light assisted greenhouses, they were called. And there was some caveat in the law. I don't, I'm not a, a yeah, cannabis the only, legal. The only thing that's legal in a lot of markets, actually, currently. Oh, is that right? Oh, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. But I just, you know, I just sat back and laughed. So uh, let me, excuse me. This is a state that grosses. $1.8 billion a year in nursery sales. That's a lot. Okay. So can you imagine the workforce here that's trained to handle large volumes of plants without breaking them, without causing problems? A lot, you know what I mean? But you're going to hire the guy from the growth store because he's really nice and he's always done you a good deal. Oh, this should work out well. Yeah, okay. So and it was it was hysterical to watch. I mean, it was like you didn't even have to be cosmic to see that this was a train wreck headed right towards the cliff, you know. Like God came down, you know, turned the track so it went over the side of the hill. It just it was outrageous. Oh, and then fires hit, so that smoke damage, you know, affected the flavor. I mean, everything that could have gone wrong did, but in all honesty, they brought it on themselves. I went on a, a call, you know, go out and look at it. Can you help me? So I walked in the greenhouse and I just looked around and, you know, you get, it looked like they'd hit the, like they flocked trees at Christmas. There's that much mold on them. So what do you think we should do? Well, what I'd do is I'd go buy machetes and start chopping and then disinfect this uh, greenhouse. You mean just throw it away? Yeah. There's nothing we can do? I don't even let it go. <laughs> and really get a mess. Have, have me get those spores everywhere. Just, you know, get them all over your clothes, man. Carry them around. Yeah. Get them in your hair. Yeah, this should work out well. So, I just wondered, like, who financed them? Didn't they have a job interview? 
This is uh, if I was gonna write it, if I was gonna write a check for ten million. So what? Uh, so I'd what at least want. Oh, there you go. There you so go. Can you fix it? Yeah. What? What am I gonna do with that? Like what? What? I don't know. Shop back your plants. Like I have no fucking. I there's literally enough honeydew so it glistens. What is that? I know it's what insect aphids. is it? Aphids. Oh, aphids. Okay. Like, like I said, we don't oh, have those. You're probably too one. cold. There's a couple yeah. of live ones. If you if you look close, there's the eggs or juveniles. Oh, jeez. It's all the exoskeletons and the leaves above it. What? No, never mind. You don't want to say. All right, brother. Have a good one. Take it easy. I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us. All right. Well, that was an awesome episode. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. Um, you guys can also check Marty and I out if you want at apmjclass.com. We do have a full-length uh, commercial aquaponic cannabis class. We have tons of build photos, um, build-out information, uh, insect guides, fungal guides, uh, constantly adding new content. We are adding 20 or more slides every month. Uh, on top of the base class uh, it's a really really awesome uh, awesome thing if you're looking to learn top to bottom and then we'll also be launching a, uh, a separate um, uh, thing geared more for people growing four to six plants uh, that'll be more based on patreon here soon uh, more info on that uh, coming shortly um, but uh, thanks everybody for watching definitely check out the uh, conference coming up put a ton of work into getting that all together um, I'm really looking forward to that. And um, yeah, we'll be back on Thursday. Um, this week we have, one second, I'll tell you who's going to be on because I don't remember currently. One second. I have currently, oh, this week is Wendy Kornberg. Wendy Kornberg will be joining us, talking to her, us about free natural farming, all the 10,000 amazing things that she's been up to, uh, which is quite a bit. She's been a very busy bee, so it will definitely uh, be awesome to talk to her and, and learn from her on the different uh, educational stuff with uh, the Ganjir program and the Korean natural farming stuff and all different, and the conference that she's put together in, in February. So it'll be a really, really cool episode. So I will see you guys on Thursday. You can find the Growing with Fishes podcast and your favorite podcast app. We're on pretty much everything at this point. And um, yeah, thanks for joining us. We will see you guys uh, again.